Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. If you want to attend. Also, um, we are running, we as in the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender, uh, we are running a, an August special on um, the our Digital Leaders Forum. The D- Digital Leaders Forum is... As far as I can tell, the most comprehensive e-course on faith, sexuality, and gender, over 20 videos of content, over eight hours of content, uh, but which include both me teaching and me talking to different people from pastors to LGBT Christians. And uh, it's, it's, I'm super excited about this product. So if you um, want to check it out, you can go to centerforfaith.com. It's the first thing that pops up on the website, centerforfaith.com. And for the month of August, we are running a discount of uh, $15 off of the Digital Leaders Forum. It retails for $65. So right now for the month of August, you can get it for 50 bucks. So there's still a couple weeks left to uh, sign up for the e-course, the Digital Leaders Forum. My guest for today is a guy I've been wanting to talk to for, I would say, four years at least. Um, Hugh Halter is a church planter, but a very different sort of church planter. He is an entrepreneur. He's a different sort of entrepreneur. He is a pastor. He's a very different kind of pastor. He's written several books, including The Tangible Kingdom, which um, is kind of his... I don't want to say manifesto, but kind of his vision for what church can and should be. He's also written other books like Sacrilege, uh, Flesh is his most recent book, and several others you can find on his website, HughHalter.com. I, as I'll say in the podcast, whenever I talk about church or ecclesiology, uh, people often say, oh, so you've been reading Hugh Halter. And I'm like, actually, I know who Hugh Halter is, but I've never actually read any of his books. And people usually are a little bit stunned when they hear that because apparently, apparently, when I talk about church, it's very similar to the way Hugh Halter not only talks about church, but has been doing church for the last 20 years. And I so enjoyed this conversation. I don't know if you're going to enjoy it or not. I think you probably will. I think you'll love it, actually. But for me, this conversation showed me that I'm not completely insane or maybe both Hugh and I are insane, and that's a, that's a very likely possibility. In any case, I enjoyed talking to Hugh about his journey in the church and in the kingdom of God, especially what he's been doing recently in his... Well, I'm just going to stop there. You're going to hear all about it. Please welcome to the show for the first time, hopefully not the last time, the one and only Hugh Halter.
are live on Theology in the Raw. Actually, we are not live. We're recording this, and this conversation is happening probably a few weeks before you are listening to it. But anyway, <laughs> that's the podcast world, right? Uh, I am here with my new friend, and um, I don't even know how to refer to you, Hugh. I mean, almost like a uh, a mentor, but not in a sense, like <laughs> a, a brother from another mother. Who uh, there's, there's who, a lot of other words people have used for me. I could give you some of those. So, <laughs> yeah. um, so I'm here with Hugh Halter, and uh, let, let me just quickly begin by saying, whenever I talk about church to other people, I often get the response, oh, so you must be reading a lot of Hugh Halter stuff. And I actually uh, haven't. <laughs> My thoughts on church and discipleship and the kingdom of God and everything um, has not been f- just simply drawn from Hugh's stuff. But apparently, Hugh, um, we have similar ideas of what the church can and should be. So why don't we start with um, just who you, for those who don't know Hugh Halter, give us a quick introduction of who you are, and maybe that can lead us into a conversation about what you've been doing with church and church planning over the last several decades, really. Sure. Well, first of all, Preston, great to finally meet you. I've heard of you often, and uh, I've been mentored by you from a distance on quite a few issues, so good to finally hang with you on the phone. Um, yep, I am Hugh Halter. Uh, I don't... <laughs> think that means much of anything, but um, I probably got known, you know, I kind of came out of the woodwork about 10 years ago with a book called The Tangible Kingdom that uh, was kind of a story of what we were doing with an alternative way of doing church uh, that kind of came out right when a lot of contemporary missional conversation was happening. Some mates from Australia, Alan Hirsch, Mike Frost, and others were beginning to write about the nature of the missionary church and we, you know, a lot of that was philosophical, theological, and our story came out as a practical look at a different way of doing church. And it just kind of, uh, for whatever reason, it took off. And then I found myself flying all over the world hmm. telling our story, which honestly, I didn't think was that big of a deal. But, um, you know, I think our country needed some different looks of church, you know. And so that, you know, that's what we've been doing. We planted a church in Portland, Oregon back in the 90s. Uh, then we moved to Denver and did the Tangible Kingdom church plant story. And uh, now we are in the kind of north of St. Louis, a little town called Alton, Illinois, on our third sort of travels in the church world. And this one will look probably completely different than the first two. So that's who I am. I've, I've, I have penned some books. I hate writing. Really? Um, but I, yeah, I really do. And I, I don't even like speaking, which is, <laughs> I do those two things mostly, but it's just, you know, there's things that just keep you up at night to where you have to say something. And so, you know, whatever I've written is generally related, you know, even the church planting stuff, I don't really get jazzed about church planting. I think it's the hardest, most miserable thing you can be called to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love lost people coming to faith you know and so if that works then you have to plant churches so the church becomes you know something that you begin to grow out of the fruit of people finding faith in jesus so you know in some ways i say i've been stuck with the church planting thing or the the church thing but i love the church and uh i love what it could be it just right now it's really difficult, as you know. Well, why don't you give us a – let's drill down a little deeper into uh, ecclesiology. I don't need to define that. My audience is 
super smart. They they know what that means. But um, what? Uh, yeah, give it, just let's go a little bit deeper into your ecclesiology review of the church. Maybe even contrasting with how you maybe grew up or the models you came out of, and now I don't even like using the term model, sure. but the the. the what the the shape of church the 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 focus of church um what does it mean to be a missional church give, give us a little more of a in-depth look at yep. yeah your ecclesiology sure but i mean first of all you know your listeners should know i i grew up in a normal church nazarene evangelical church i came to faith because i was sneaking out of the sunday school because i loved hearing sermons so i was in fifth grade and Pastor preached a sermon. I responded, walked the aisle. So I did the normal, traditional thing um, very early on. So I'd say I was very much blessed by a traditional look of church. Um, But as I got married and adopted a son named Ryan, Ryan had really severe epilepsy. And he was having, you know, in those early days, 20 grand mal seizures a day, every day without a break. And uh, it got so bad, I had to actually leave seminary. I was two years into my MDiv program and we just couldn't manage life because I was probably an hour of sleep a night. And, you know, that disability with Ryan changed everything because we literally couldn't leave our home. You know, I was, I had to go back to a house painting trade and yet we just had this burning desire to see people come to faith and form community. So all, all we had was our house and a few extra hours with, you know, a little bit of energy. And so we did, we started to to get pretty intentional about what we did with people and pretty soon the house filled up. And then we, we basically just taught people to do what we were, were doing. So early days, you know, I guess I was trying my hand at house church, but I, there wasn't even any literature on house church at that time. So I just thought, well, we're just doing small, small church, although a lot of people were coming to faith, you know, so you know, that story began to change the way I viewed ecclesiology. Um, you know, oftentimes when I talk to pastors about, you know, the state of the church, that most most leaders know it's not good right now. Every denomination is on the decline, pretty rapid decline. So, you know, when people are going, well, what's the church supposed to be? Do we have to go back to kind of missiology? Alan Hirsch, a great uh, kind of contemporary theologian, missiologist, said uh, usually we start with ecclesiology that's very connected to our theology. So we're either reformed or we're Arminian or we're whatever. And then we try to get people to do missiology. So we literally lead with ecclesiology and theology and then try to get people to do missiology. Alan says, when we start to think about church in our day, you have to go, you have to begin with Christology. You have to start with Jesus again. Uh, and not just, you know, what he did on the cross. You start with his humanity, how he lived in the world. And if you settle the issue of Christology, in other words, if anybody would say, I will, no matter what is going on, I will let Jesus decide what I do with my day, then Jesus will immediately take you to the second role, which is missiology. He'll say, hey, let's, let's go do something today. And let's go talk to people and bless people and love people. And then eventually, as you're on mission with Jesus, he will begin to reframe theology. Hmm. And then eventually, he'll build his ecclesiology. So it's almost the the reverse sort of way that we would think about church. We try to plant churches, which is essentially sermon teaching times. Yeah. But 
most of our Christians in America, they've never really done the missiology. They don't go with Jesus. And so when we start talking about what is the missional church, all we're talking about is a group of people that wake up in the morning and go, Lord, you can do whatever you want with me today. And then church becomes an outgrowth of what is happening in people's lives, not something you lead with. So in all of the churches that we've started, we literally framed the ecclesiology later. Hmm. You know, we didn't even have names for what we were doing. There was no church name. There was no website. There was just people that were coming to faith. And we would disciple our friends and then fill up houses with people that were doing the same thing. And and then eventually, then you start going, oh, we've got lots of communities and people want to see each other. So then we would begin to to frame con- sort of the congregationalizing of the mission fruit, if you if you will. That's and, uh, and yeah. though, you know, it, it makes so much more sense, and it does seem to reflect the um, I don't know. Anyway, you know, there's there's prescriptive and descriptive in the New Testament. You know, is the early church in the New Testament the, the way the church should always be, or is it just simply what happened? And I think it's probably yep. somewhere in the in the middle. And I, I, sometimes those categories are a little too artificial. But I mean, what, what you're saying seems to really reflect what you see in the New Testament. You have the gospel going forth, the word of God going forth, some people embracing it, and then because we are communal beings, they gather together, and then they uh, because of Jesus, they break bread, drink wine. Uh, and because they want to grow in their faith, they study the apostles teaching and then they pray together. And it's, it just feels very organic and stripped down. Um, and yet it doesn't seem that complicated. So what's your, um, so what complicates it? Well, yeah. And I, there's so many different directions I want to go here. And I, and I do this often on the podcast, but I, I want to, I want to really, seize our time to have you halter on the show and not, not just me talking about these, you know, ideas that I haven't really worked out. What, 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 tell us about the first church plant. I see there I go again, church plant. Tell us about the first city that your time in Portland, when you had um, a church grow out of everything you're talking about, for, for lack of better terms, evangelism, discipleship, um, God's spirit moving forth, people coming to Jesus, people wanting to walk together, and all of a sudden now you start meeting maybe once a week, probably on a Sunday, maybe there's some teaching. What, tell us about that first experience of um, letting the, well, the church the first grow more one, organically. Yeah, totally. I mean, the first one was literally born out of I, – I was working for Youth for Christ, so I was hanging out with high school kids, football coach you know, hanging out with all kids that are outside the church, and a lot of them were coming to faith. And back in those days, the model was you try to plug those kids into a local church. And we tried that. So, you know, early days, I wasn't even thinking about church leadership or planting a church. Um, I just loved seeing, you know, brand new people come to faith. But the problem was whenever we would try to put these kids into local churches, they would just get their, you know what, handed to them. Mm-hmm. And they would get so judged or so ostracized. A lot of our kids were African American, so mm-hmm. we started to go, "Oh, white people don't always want black people in their youth groups." And so it was—it was more of a tension point. I just was like, "Wow, the church doesn't want the people that we're reaching on mission." And so finally, my wife and I just said, "Screw it, let's just start some sort of a community for these people that we've already seen come to faith." And then those relationships began to grow because some of their parents started to come around and then it was our neighborhood, you know? Mm -hmm. So it it was, you know, usually Cheryl and I would intentionally give up three to seven meals a week. That was like an intentional rhythm. We said, let's just eat with people and let's just ask them how they're doing. And then 
nobody was doing well. <laughs> so, you know, we would just start to love on them and have more dinners. And on about the 30th dinner, mm. you know, they'd start to share things spiritually. And then they'd ask us questions. And then we'd say, you know, I don't know if it'd be of interest to you, but every other Thursday night we meet at the house with people that are just trying to figure out faith and life. And we usually pray for each other. And so we would we would make an invitation, but it was after a lot of what we call incarnation or mm-hmm. life with people. Um, but we, we did always have that kind of that thing in our house every other Thursday night. Um, so it wasn't every week, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so twice a month we'd have kind of that Jesus time. And that seemed to be enough, you know, that on those off weeks, it was more like we were on. It just gave us more time to throw a lot of parties and hang with people. And, um, so, you know, our original story was that we just knew that if we don't relate with people, we have no way that we're going to be able to proclaim to these people. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's, you know, I wrote a book later called Flesh, which was trying to help Christians understand the power of the incarnational life. That Jesus didn't just come to die for sins, but he literally came to teach us how to be human again in the neighborhood. And, you know, if he did it, then we got to do it. Or because he loved to do it with people, we get to do it, right? I mean, so John 1, it says this word becomes flesh and he, he dwells in the neighborhood. And because he did that, we were able to perceive the glory of God. So I always, I always say in the text we're in now in America, our street cred is so bad as a Christian movement, be it tying it to Trump or tying it to anti-refugees or, oh, you guys don't let women teach in your churches. I mean, you can go down the list of all the things. Oh, and by the way, this is how you guys have generally treated the gay community. Mm-hmm. And we've got eight to 12 major blows against the street cred of the evangelical church right now. And that's showing people what God is like to them. So Jesus, I think, would go, he would come in and in the midst of all that, we go, no, let me give you a different picture of God. Hmm. And he's, you're going to figure out who God is because you're going to watch me be different than all that stuff you see tied to me. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I'm teaching evangelism, which is really the front end of a church plant, I go evangelism is not teaching or telling people something they've never heard before. It's literally changing their assumptions about what they think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way we're going to change the assumptions is we have to be different type of people that represent, literally, not stick up for God, but represent him, act yeah. just like he would act on the neighborhood. So that's that's a long answer to that question, but no, that's good. It's critical. What, so that was your first um, your your first stab at this was not even really trying to do it. You were just being a Christian, reaching people, and it sort of organically grew out of that. Now. Fast forward to let's just skip over Denver. Let's go to um, north yep. of St. Louis where you're at now. I, I, I would imagine your well. I, I don't know. I'll ask you. I mean, ha, has anything really changed? What have you added or taken away or refined to your sort of view of? And I'm just going to use the phrase church planning with using that as yep. broadly as I possibly can because when people hear that, they think, okay, you you raise a quarter million dollars, you find a staff, you go in. You start meeting with people, and in one year, you launch church. And what that means is your first Sunday yeah. service, and now churches began. What you're saying that that, yeah, I mean, you've already kind of said how, how you know, you, you would kind of maybe re, reframe that whole thing. But yep. um, So w- tell us about your church now, and how has it maybe changed, shifted, or, 
or or maybe say the same since you know from the last ten years. And, well, there's there's definitely some similarities, but this is way different. This this was a total curveball after the the tangible kingdom story in Denver. Um, you know, I resigned from that after about 14 years, and Ryan, we finally found this assisted living center for Ryan out here in this little town called Alton, Illinois. So we're just 20 minutes north of St. Louis, and um, so we brought Ryan out here six years ago, and so that was the first time Cheryl and I had ever been able to do our life without his kind of constant disability. So it was a huge breath of fresh air for the whole family, and Ryan loved it out here. But, you know, we would fly in and visit this little town. Um, people have heard of Ferguson. We're about nine miles just north of Ferguson. Wow. Um, okay. About 40% of the, the population here in Alton is African-American. It's very, very poor. It used to be three times the size. It's roughly about 30,000 people right now. It's right on the Mississippi River, kind of a beautiful little river town. But um, – it had lost most of its industry. So the average family income in Alton is right around $22,000. It's uh, wow. extremely poor. I just, you know, it's the hood, but it's not like what you would see right down the middle of downtown St. Louis. It has the same demographics, crime issues, all that, but it feels more like a town. So we would, we'd fly in and visit this little place and we were, we were taken by the beauty of it, but we're like, holy cow, why is everything seemingly boarded up? Hmm. Uh, we found out later half the homes are slumlord owned and, you know, we, so we just were kind of intrigued by, it. you know, the first church plant was really for us more inner city, multi-ethnic. Uh, this felt like that to us. And, and yet we're living on a four acre horse ranch in Colorado, kind of enjoying the spoils of, of, you know, I'd resigned from leading the church. So it was kind of our first break. I bought my wife some horses and, you know, we're kind of loving life, but, on probably the 10th trip in, my wife and I were talking to a gal who had, she was our waitress. And I, I asked her, what do young people do in this town? And she goes, oh, most of them just do drugs now. And we chatted with her a little bit longer. And walking out of this little Italian bar, my wife goes, why don't we just move here and see if we can do something to help the town out? Hmm. And it was kind of a, you know, it was one of those weird moments where, like, I knew sh that she was sniffing something the Lord was laying down and I was too, I just didn't want to leave Denver. I was, I didn't want to do it again. You know, I didn't want to start over. And if you've ever been to Denver, it's just like a, a big Boise, right? It's just a yeah. playground. So I was like, I don't, I don't want to enter in. I'd rather just be a consultant and speak and go home and hang out in the barn, you know, but <laughs> so Cheryl and I got in a bit of a fight on the sidewalk. She's like, no, seriously. Like, and I was like, well, Number one, I just bought you a ranch. I just got you horses. Like, there's a lot of reasons why we shouldn't do this. And long story short, we went back home, had a, a talk with our two daughters who were, one of them was just newly married, one was engaged. And the entire family except me said, yeah, let's go do another, they, you know, the way we framed it, let's go, let's go on mission again as a family. And, you know, I was the last one to hold out, but eventually, I just, you know, couldn't handle it. So we all came out here literally as a family on mission going, okay, let's try to do something to help the town. I was not thinking about a church plant. Hmm. Um, I would just walk the streets. We, we all bought houses within about six blocks right in the downtown area. And uh, I would kind of walk and pray. And uh, 
tried to buy, you know, you couldn't find, literally think about this, Preston, a town of 30,000, there was no coffee shop. There was no breakfast joint. There was no place that people just hang out. And so I finally said, I'm just going to start a coffee shop. So I tried to buy a little gas station and renovate it all of Portland, Oregon style. And that deal fell through. And um, I remember having coffee with Cheryl at home. I said, okay, fine. Let's just not do anything for a year. Let's just pray. And she was like, that's a good idea. And then it was literally two hours later, I get a call from a guy named John who I only had one lunch with before. And he said, hey, come to my house. I want to take you on a drive to show you some places around Alton that I own. And uh, he pulled up in front of an old federal post office right in the middle of downtown, right next to City Hall. It's this beautiful, ornate, you know, federal building. And uh, he goes, what do you think about it? I was like, oh, it's, you know, it's beautiful. He goes, well, I'm glad you like it. I feel like I'm supposed to give it to you. And he goes, I think you, you'll know what to do to help our town. And I literally said, no, I was like, John, I don't, I don't want it, you know? And he, <laughs> he gave me the key and he goes, just keep the key. If you really don't want it, uh, give it back to me in a month or two. And so we got the family in the building and within 10 minutes, my kids were like, no brainer, dad, let's, hmm. let's make the living, let's make the living room for our city. Let's make a place of connection and let's provide what they don't have. So we did, we started, I think we're the largest non-chain coffee shop in the Midwest. Wow. We can seat 500 people and uh, it's an all day brunch cafe. And then we're the premier event space in our town. It's, it's just unbelievable building. With, and uh, strangely, I did get a bunch of funding from people I didn't know. So we took about a year, renovated it and we are the place that everybody meets in our town. So government meetings, reconciliation meetings. And then out of that, we've gotten so much street cred. I mean, I oftentimes tell church planners, if I had come into this town to plant a church, I would have got the middle finger by everybody, including the the church leaders. Hmm. But if the Lord knows what he wants to do missiologically in our cities, and I'm walking the streets and, the Trinity is going, Hey, let's tell Halter to do a coffee shop and and an events joint and a brunch cafe. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a cool thought that the Lord knows a better way to enter Mm -hmm. relationships than we oftentimes do. And we do, we, we try to enter as a pastor or a church and Jesus didn't do that. You know, Jesus entered as a person who worked amongst people and, So long story short, Preston, we've been in business about a year and a half. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we've had to we've had to tell the newspapers to stop writing articles about us because it's getting so weird. Wow. And you know we've got nine employees, but out of that we you know we say our we're an incubator for good works. So Post Commons is the name of the business, but our nonprofit is called Lantern Network, and it's just we incubate good work. So we anybody who wants to help people, including people that don't know Jesus, we say let us help you start new businesses, start social entrepreneurship, and thirdly, if you just want to start a missional community. So there are some Christians that go, I just want to reach my neighborhood. So mm-hmm. um, we've incubated now um, – five little individual businesses. So it's not a big story. We're just kind of getting off the runway. Um, we've got three missional communities that are beginning to gather just kind of more neighborhoodish, mm-hmm. And we're just going to keep going. On the side of that, we have a little, I guess you would call it a church missions community called Side Door. And we call it that because everybody that's a part of that comes in the side door um, mm-hmm. of the building. We don't, I don't think we'll ever have a public worship service. Okay. Because I think public worship services, in most cases, draw Christian people. And right now, I'm not so sure that the standard Christian in this kind of Midwestern part of the culture is going to do very well with the non-Christian people that we're relating with and are, are gaining so much street cred. So yeah. our side door is essentially like a core group community. But all we do in that is mission formation and helping them to start and a little micro communities. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in some ways we're, we're really discipling kind of Navy SEALs, people that are going, look, I'm going to let Jesus tell me what he wants me to do. And I'm going to go try to do it. So we're more a network of missionaries or missional communities, but we have, you know, we're sustained financially from a business perspective. And that's really kind of our missionary positioning in the neighborhood is we're business people. And all the the Jesus stuff is subversive and quiet. And um, right now, it's it's been a blast. I've I've never felt like we had so much favor as I do in the story. It's almost more trying to manage what we're going to do because we have so many opportunities with people. Wow. Now, so do you so, own do you own and run like the coffee house, the brunch kitchen, the event center, the whiskey society? I mean, is that, all these things that are happening, or do you lease it out to other businesses? Well, initially we housed it all ourselves, but now we're actually trying to turn them into for-profit businesses. That's another thing, you know, when you think about that scripture where the righteous prosper, the city will rejoice. Yeah. We've, we're really trying to take that seriously, almost like the early Trappists that would, through enterprise, they would bless the local cities they were in. Um, so, you know, right right now, honestly, nonprofits are not that good of news to cities because they don't pay taxes. Right. So initially we started, you know, a really, a really good coffee house, but our main coffee manager, who's one of our missionaries wants to start a roastery. So as we're processing that, we go, well, let's, let's move you from nonprofit in our bucket to a for-profit. And so we're going to try and do that even with our kitchen, turn that into its own restaurant. So okay. essentially they would be leasing from the nonprofit, even though right now the nonprofit will probably give them free lease. It's basically we're trying to do anything we can to incubate mm-hmm. things that are going to employ more people, 
or give them relational connection with people outside the church. Yeah, that's so. So here, here's where we, I think our, our minds and hearts kind of intersect a little bit. I mean, you're doing, <laughs> this sounds like kind of like a dream. I've talked about this on a podcast um, a, a couple times, I think. Um, but I've always envisioned and, and taken my, my cue from the kind of business as mission movement. And I don't want to go too much on a tangent, but it sounds like you're doing what missionaries kind of figured out. 10, 20 years ago, that in, in a lot of cultures, a growing number of cultures, if you come in as a self or a, a supported missionary planting a church, people look at you like, what is that? Like, that's weird. Are, that's, yeah. What do you, so when I'm at work all day, people are paying you to kind of walk around the market. Like, what does that even mean? That's not attractive to me. Exactly. So that, um, you know, I've got a cousin who's, who's been in Mauritania for, or used to be for a number of years. And he says it, it would it wouldn't even get off the ground if he came in here as a missionary. So he started a restaurant, all this stuff. And, and that seems to be like missionary. They, like that used to be radical. Now it's kind of like, yeah, that's kind of the way you need to do missions in most countries. It, basically is that, I mean, I don't want to simplify, but are you basically drawing on that kind of business as mission um, model and yep. saying, Hey, we're in post Christian America. And what's happening here is not too different than what's going on around the world. Yeah, exactly. And that's why when I when I explain our story, people go, oh, it's super weird. And I go, well, yeah, but it's just weird right now in America. It's yeah. pretty normal all over the place. Um, and it's it's been norm, literally normative for church leadership for centuries. The, hmm. the idea that you would grow a congregation, that the congregation would pay you a full salary and benefits, we have to realize that's that's less than a 100-year-old story in the history of the world prior to that. It was people more like St. Benedict of the 6th century who started the Trappists, where they were the only cloistered order that did not beg for money because they made so much of it. And their sort of uh, monastic motto was Ora et Labora, which meant pray and work. They were the ones that uh, were the first ones to kind of say, hey, there's no divide between the sacred and the secular. Hmm. So everything you do, especially enterprise, is as unto the Lord. Uh, Rodney Stark later on, uh, is kind of a missiologist said it was the, the monastic leaders, really speaking of St. Benedict and the Trappists of the ninth, 10th, 11th centuries that, that literally funded the, the preliminary expansion of what would be the Reformation. They owned a third of England during the time of the Reformation. So it was the financial power of these cloistered sort of monks that literally got the story to us or at least preserved it. So, you know, we talk about marketplace planting. That's all we're saying is that yeah. your, your profile, not just your gimmick, but literally your way of life is that you live amongst the people doing what they do, you know, which obviously changes what church becomes. Church is not this hierarchical institution, but church now is going to operate as a family. Mm -hmm. And, so it's not going to be a single leader model of church. So not everybody's going to say, well, Hugh Halter is my pastor like they used to, which meant Hugh has to do everything for us. <laughs> now church, you know, if we literally do church like this, um, I'm going to give hours a week to the, the ministry functions that we might normally call ministry functions. But I'm going to have 30 other people that are all going to give 10 to 15 hours a week. So we literally do church as community. It takes the pressure off big time. And uh, it doesn't require as many church services for sure. Right. Like we've yet to have one. And 
you know, are just beginning now after a year and a half to go, okay, what does it look like to begin to provide mm-hmm. uh, kind of a, I guess, under one roof worship gathering? And we're not sure we will. We might actually have worship gatherings that are another part of what this network provides people. Yeah. So here, here's my dream or dream, my idea, I would call it a dream. Like, I don't know if I'll ever do it, but I always thought like, given the financial state of the church, the decline of Christianity and everything we're talking about now, what if you, what if your church plant was a coffee house by day, you just bought a building, maybe get some investors, bought a building, um, turned it into a coffee house by day, a tap room at night. And then also in the times when those businesses aren't functioning, you can open it up to a, gathering place for for believers a gathering yep. place for nonprofit whatever yada yada um so that you are in, your gathering place is completely integrated with the community um you are providing a service both to the businesses maybe you can charge maybe if you have a couple different businesses come in um maybe you can charge them you know 75% of what it would normally cost i know in downtown boise it's incredibly expensive like any downtown area yep. But man, if you got two different businesses operating here, you can probably, um, you know, um, you know, squeeze every ounce of time out of this building, you know. Um, but then offer, you yep. know, bless these businesses, bless the community, um, also make it, you know, this is a public gathering place for for believers. Um, would this would something like this work? Am I just? I mean, it sounds kind of like what you're uh, doing. No, in, you just described what we're doing okay. to the T, and <laughs> and we work. have total control to give our building like. For instance, you know, we've got a really beautiful basement part of this building. So it's 12,000 square feet total. 9,000 is the upstairs main area where you have events rooms and the coffee house rooms and a big kind of grand, you know, 25 foot ceiling foyer type of thing. And, but down below is this really cool kind of 3,000 square foot. So I was thinking, well, I should try to monetize that, maybe do a shared office space mm-hmm. concept. But the more we were talking with, uh, a lot of, you know, some of them were our barista staff that are not Jesus people, um, but also talking to other people that were like, there's not a place where young artists in our town can really just hang out. Hmm. And so we decided to, to literally just donate the basement to the arts community here. Wow. And, you know, we will not make money, but we, we try to make our money through events primarily. Okay. We just barely cover the nine staff through the coffee and the food, but the events are where we can actually make profit. And so that profit we make there allows us to then go, okay, let's donate this space to, you know, and I would say none of the young artists that I've met know the Lord. Hmm. So to me, again, it's not a gimmick. It's just a way to bless them. And, and hopefully they see in us kind of a unique generosity that might, I hope it spurs some conversation, which it really has already. Um, but that's, you know, it's essentially how, how we think about business permission. We remember when Paul would, would say, hey, and he's talking about a very unique context. He said, for you guys, I decided to work amongst you so as not to be a burden. Yeah. That's a, that's a missionary going, hey, I, you know, where other times Paul's appears that he's raising money or saying, hey, don't muzzle an ox or a workman's worthy of his hire type of thing. So Paul did seem to say, you know, you should try to help people that are essentially helping guide the community. But for him personally, he went into a unique context and went, and the le- the least amount of burden I can be on this thing, the better. Mm-hmm. And so he worked. I, I think that's what we're coming to in America right now. And I'm saying in all the church plan networks that I'm kind of helping coach or 
influence. Everybody right now is looking to the marketplace, uh, not just planting, but even existing pastors are going, well, you know, I can still preach on the weekend. I don't need to get paid for that. And they're literally entering the workforce just because they want to be a missionary and relate to people again. That's a, yeah. it's very fascinating. I'm seeing that more, even, or even like a bivocational model, or some. Yep. Um, you know, you have a few movements at least, or people like like Fran, what Francis Chan is doing in San Francisco and others, where, you know, yep. at least for Chan, there's you know zero money goes into the actual running of the of the ministry of the church, so that there's not a single ministry decision that's based on money or even affected by money. And I, I was super yep. attracted yep. to that. Um, for a while, I think now I I do because we 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 I started something kind of like that. We're not a penny went in, and um, and maybe it was just my situation or whatever. But it couldn't. Um, I, I don't know. I saw the need for. I think it can be good in most, not every, but most contexts to have some kind of financial release for some leaders to. Um, to, yep, to totally. lead, you know, for, I agree. Yeah, uh, but that not in every kid. That's the thing. I don't think there's one strict model that for every context needs to be the norm. There needs to be some flexibility. For me, I was about to slip my wrist because I was just it just, it just put me over the top <laughs> because I'm already doing, you know, a full time and a half ministry where you yep. know e- even even the thought of trying to prepare put 20 minutes into preparation of a message or a talk or a teaching or to meet with one, one more person that's part of the church was just like, it just put me over the edge. Um, but that's, if I, well, that's why I would say like, I, I do think we should fund leaders, but we've traditionally funded the pastor shepherd yeah. teacher role. I think biblically what Paul was really pushing for is that the apostolic, you know, just now within the missionary conversation, what we call the APES model of leadership based on Ephesians 4, mm-hmm. apostle, prophet, shepherd, teacher, you know, all that stuff. Paul would, I think, argue and others that study that would say we should be funding our apostolic evangelists, the ones that are out as the tip of the spear, which yeah. tend to be the entrepreneurial um, because they do. They create a wake behind them. And the shepherd teacher roles oftentimes are the most natural to most of the body of Christ. So I would, I would say, I don't think in most cases you need to pay somebody to preach a sermon or even provide a worship set. Right. What you do need is you need to free up people that are discipling leaders who will be missionaries in their yes. own context. So yeah. um, you almost need to fund coaches, yeah. trainers and coaches would, would be the funding element, I think, or, you fund the apostolic work. So we did have people that gave money. You know, we, we had to raise $600,000 to renovate the building. Mm-hmm. Um, we're three years in. I have yet to take a penny from this personally. So I actually am starting another paint job, you know, this week. So sometimes I travel and speak. Sometimes I'm painting the house. Um, sometimes, you know, so I have five or six buckets, but I personally am trying not to be a burden. Yeah. Even though I'm sort of the apostolic leader of this movement, um, my board has voted that I should be making income off of this at some point. We're, we're trying to, you know, maybe next year start to hive off a little bit. Um, and I, I think it's important that leaders have to have some sustainability, right? Right. Um, but that apostolic role oftentimes is a combination between fundraising, actual work, labor, you know, fee for service, if you will. Um, and mm-hmm. potential congregational support. But 
I think it can be a combination of those. It doesn't have to. I think when you settle on one, I'm going to make my full salary through a congregation. I think then, yeah, you get into some weird space where it begins to shut down the mission. What, what I, let's let's. I want to keep focusing on the money thing because I've been t- thinking through this. For, I mean, for 20 years, really, but especially the last few years. And I, so I don't know if I'm I'm contradicting myself or I have two competing interests. On the one hand, I love the idea of, and let's just call it ministry or a church, whatever. To be, I don't I don't like it when any ministry decision is based on money on some level. Which I don't care how the a, a traditional model of church cast that as broadly as you want. And at the end of the day, yep. if your church is shrinking, that affects the budget, that affects the ministry, that affects everything. The whole thing could crumble if you preach one message and half the people leave. And at the end of the day, like you are making ministry decisions based on money if you're really honest with yourself. So I want to I want to free, you know, I often say, you know, how much does it cost to break bread, drink wine, study the Bible and pray together? You know, hope, hopefully that shouldn't yep. cost a lot. Um, but we've created a system where it does. It costs sometimes millions of dollars to be able to do that. Um, so I, I, I'm very yep. allergic to ministry being intertwined so much with money on the on the flip side i'm also i don't like the kind of old school oh you're doing the lord's work so you have to um not make a lot of money while you go get your teeth pulled by your christian dentist and you have no problem with him making half a million it's like well wait a minute like that just doesn't make like why are some we we will say all vocations are unto the lord why is it totally fine for some vocations filled by Christians to the goal, the success is I made a ton of money. If you have a Christian real estate agent, you would say, oh my gosh, he is killing it. He's, he's making 2 million a year. You know, he's giving 10%, whatever, but like, you have no problem with that. But if you, let's just say you in your situation as a, you're an entrepreneur now, what if you really started killing it? What if you're making half a million a year and you're being very generous, whatever? I think people would be like, wait a minute, is that okay? Like he's a pastor, he's a minister. So I don't know. I don't know. I want to at least be consistent with how we think about and value Christians, money, entrepreneurship, ministry, all that stuff. So I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to sort out. Am I contradicting myself? Am I, you know, being money grubby no, over I mean, here? I, I, I don't know. Oh, I think it's it's a normal question. I think it's a context thing, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we're part of a ministry network where, uh, you know, a group that coached us is out of Birmingham called Common Threads. There's about 100 missionaries in that movement that, again, do very similar they start coffee shops and other businesses, but they also buy up tons of homes in the very, very poorest parts of Birmingham. Well, their community, they just asked everybody in that community to take a vow of simplicity where nobody lives on more than double the poverty line. So an average family of five to seven, um, three to seven, if you will, most of them are living off of less than $3,000 a month. And they, they make that commitment as a, essentially a neo-monastic okay. movement. That, you know, so what we've said here in Alton is we're going we're gonna to ask our people to make a downward, what we call a cruciform mm-hmm. uh, sort of model of their life. So we didn't, we, we didn't feel comfortable asking everybody to make that level of commitment, but we said, would you be downwardly mobile? So my wife and I, during that, we sold a larger house that we bought. Interestingly, we bought a beautiful 4,000-square-foot Victorian home for $260,000. Yeah. You know, coming from Denver, where we're selling a really kind of a 
kind of cool but relatively crappy four acre ranch for about a million dollars. We come into this town, we're like, oh my gosh, we have, we can buy anything we want. For the first time in our lives, we actually had money. And so we did. We bought, you know, kind of a higher end home, but, you know, and it wasn't that much, but we still felt like, no, we could downsize. So we, we just bought a house last year to downsize. Still a beautiful house. Mm-hmm. But we're, again, we're, if I don't do that, then I've got to go figure out how to maybe take a little bit more money out of the movement or spend more time on the road speaking. But I want to be here. So we're constantly re-architecting our financial scenario to where we can simplify. In Denver, Colorado, we, we had to have 10 grand a month just to survive. Hmm. Um, it's probably more than that now because it's just booming. All of a sudden in Alton, we're, we're trying to learn how to live off $4,000 a month. Okay. So it's more of an internal ethos that you create in your movement mm-hmm. that's contextual. If if I made a ton of money at the post and all of a sudden we had hundreds of thousands of profit, I do feel like it would be inappropriate because, we're, again, we're trying to represent uh, where the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. So if we make profit, we feel like it's for the city. And I do feel like there there is a cap. There should be a cap in every context where – you are a normal person in the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just a commitment we've made. Even if we kill it, we're going to, we're going to give that away and we're going to use it for kingdom stuff. But what, let me, uh, push into that just a little, not even push back, but just push into like what, so what, what, let's just say you started getting more successful and everything and that success, it's one thing for your success to hinder somebody else's success. I mean, that's where, you know, I don't know. I'm not an economist, but that's where, you know, unchecked capitalism can be destructive and, you know, driven by greed and everything. Yep. But what if your success actually spilled over and helped was was a blessing to others in the community? Say, say you were successful and then you started two or three other businesses and more employment and now the economy exactly. of the city yep. and, and you're being let's just say you're saying, you know, what, I'm committed to give away 50 percent of my income if I'm making more than, you know, Hundred fifty thousand a year, yep. or whatever. Well, let's just say you're making five hundred thousand a year, and you're like, I'm still going to give away half. Well, you're still making a lot of money after that. But yeah, you're exactly. Um, so I, I don't know. Like I, I guess would it be Look, accurate I, for, for you? To... I, I pray for millions. I really do, because <laughs> I see the power of finance in poor, blighted areas. I, yeah. I mean, the the two things you need to revive a town are great people and money. Yeah. So you still need money, but your average church in America is spending 90% of all of their income in-house yes, on pastors yeah. and yeah. buildings. So we've inverted the tithe. We literally teach the tithes to try to get people to bring all their money in. But yeah. we invert it. It used to be the clergy would take a 10% rake off the top, you know, yeah. and give 90% to the poor. We're, so yeah. I, I hope that the future of funding is that we do. We make so much money through good benevolent enterprise yeah. that not only are, are our leaders sustainable, but we're able to actually immediately give it to the needs of our cities. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I've often thought like, I, I don't, I've never, I was raised in a really poor family. My uh, parents were divorced at 10. My wife or my wife, my mom worked three jobs just to put food on the table. I was on my 16th birthday. I was literally working at, uh, in California that I don't know if it still is that the, you can, you had to be 16 to, to work for like, you know, legally, and on my 60th birthday, I worked right. eight hours at Burger King, you know, so it's just, it's been in my blood, and my wife was a raised missionary family and everything, so we have a natural, like, we don't have, 
I don't know. I just I haven't struggled with like a desire to for for more stuff and more income. But what I do desire, I would love to be financially freed up to do quote unquote ministry without you know the thought of oh, yep. but I still need to put food on the table. And yes, I'll go speak here, but I need to get paid because I need to eat. You know, I would love to. Exactly. You know, I've had people around the world say, "Hey, can you come in and?" help us sort through questions of sexuality. And I'm like, yeah, but that's going to cost like thousands of dollars for me to fly over there. Um, either I leave my family for two weeks or I bring them. If I bring them, then that's a huge price. I would love to be financially freed up to just say, sure. Yeah, no problem. Because I, I, I have that kind of financial freedom to be able to do the Lord's work, you know, um, uh, without, yeah. I don't know. I'm constantly wrestling with the, the ministry money kind of question. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I, almost... I think every I think everybody is honestly. I, I think even pastors that take a full salary wrestle. Yeah. I oftentimes tell people there's not really a better way for funding, and there's nothing unbiblical about taking a full salary from a church. Sure. But wherever you take money, there's strings attached. That's the bottom line. Yeah. And if you take money from a congregation, you will feel constrained, and at times you won't pastor them or tell them what you know you should, and you know. And if you make your money from business, or you, then there's strings attached. If, if I make money at Starbucks, I got to do a good job working for Starbucks. So, yeah. um, you know, it's almost like there's not a perfect way to fund yourself, but there are more options than there used to be. That's what I oftentimes tell the bivocational or co-vocational or pure, you know, marketplace leader is pick pick the life that you like. You're you're you and I are probably very similar, Preston. We probably enjoy five or six different buckets because it's yeah. kind of fun to do something different every day. Um, but I also don't like the pressure of having to get on a plane and leave my context. Right. And as I'm getting older and, you know, grandkids are popping out, I I have to constantly re-architect the life that I feel like I want and what I feel like the Lord wants for us. For me right now, it's uh, trying to get, you know, I used to be 15 days a, a month speaking somewhere. I'm trying to get that to two, two to three days a week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free and Anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, that, that means I have to adjust where I'm making money. So when somebody walked into the post office the other day and said, do you know any house painters? Huh. I, you know, I initially was like, no, oh, crap. But I said, <laughs> well, let me go take a look at it for you. You know, so... Yeah. I start, you know, something I don't really enjoy, I'll be honest with you. Painting is not my favorite thing anymore. But I go, well, looks like maybe that's the way God's going to provide for this week's income. And then I'll worry about next week's, next, you know, next week. Sometimes because we have a nonprofit, people do like what we're doing. So 
occasionally I get just a pure financial donation and I'm able to receive that because we have a nonprofit and you know, there's some for-profit buckets, there's non-profit buckets and there's my personal work buckets. And I kind of enjoy that, you know, most entrepreneurs kind of like that. So yeah, I do too. I, but it, I'll, yeah. I'll be honest with you, Preston, I never know where we're going to make income two, more than two weeks in advance. Oh, and right. it's been like that for 25 years. Huh. And you know, even though I essentially oversee a building that's worth about a million bucks right now, I, I can't benefit from that personally because it's it's the nonprofit's building. So yeah. I live by faith as a 52-year-old, just like I did when I was 25. I literally have no idea how, you know, where it will come from a year from now. But God's been faithful. Wow. You know, we're we're here by God's grace, that's and awesome. you know. We've most of the time we've been relatively broke because our son's disability costs us almost everything. But somehow we're here and what God wants to do in the city, he provides for. So he gave me a building and he gave me 600 grand in about a year's time because that's what God wanted to do. And I I always tell people, stop trying to figure out how you're going to sustain life or, you know, figure out the perfect balance. The first question, Christology is Jesus, what do you want to do in this town or this neighborhood? And if you can align yourself with what Jesus would do, God will provide. Like, he's no dummy. He's not going to waste a willing servant and a really cool entrepreneurial idea. And, and I will tell you this, there's a lot of church people that are so done giving their money to just the weekend services. They're looking for kingdom entrepreneurial work. I think people will be surprised that funding will come in for, you know, some alternative things that we're doing on behalf of the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm almost kicking myself for skipping over your Denver experience, the tangible kingdom thing. Let's go back there and uh, go back in your, in Hugh Halter's life. You leave Portland to go to Denver. Tell us about that whole part of your journey. Well, that was, I was just working for a missions agency at the time and, and we were basically traveling the world, trying to teach people how to do missionary church just like you would overseas locally. So we, I, we were the only, I think we were the only non-attractional church plant training. So we really went there as a travel hub, but we all, always lived it out. You know, so I, w- I was back house painting. And then uh, again, we started filling up the house, but then we codified what we were doing that was creating all the evangelistic sort of fruit. Um, and that became the tangible kingdom. There were the the title of the book were was basically reflective of three rhythms of life that we asked people to live in order to make the kingdom more tangible to people. And uh so that's all that book was. It was kind of a rethink, um, but giving people simple handholds essentially all we did, Preston, was we said we taught people a two one one rhythm of life. So in a given month, have two times a month where you you gather together and you read scripture and you pray, you take communion and do the Jesus Christian thing. Um, On your other weeks, throw a party. We just, Acts 10, the power of of just relating with people as a normal human being. So just throw lots of parties. And then a third circle is just blessing. So it was create places of belonging for people. Uh, do things that help you just be with Jesus and then go bless people. So very simple. Mm-hmm. But we said, if you're going to be a part of our kind of neo-monastic movement, you have to commit to those three rhythms of kingdom life. And so that ended up being 
kind of a 10-year experience. We wrote a eight-week uh, journal experience called the TK Primer that I think we've sold. I think we're right around 300,000 of those. Wow. And that became the tool that we use within existing congregations to begin to help renovate them back to missionary lifestyle. Hmm. And uh, so in a lot of ways, what we're doing in Alton, we go, we go back to those rhythms, of course, mm-hmm. at, the, at the kind of the missional community level. Um, back in the Denver day, there was no business element, though. You know, okay. I was still house painting, but we, we were not thinking about, we weren't running a coffee shop. We were, I guess, uh, taking a more traditional approach to just working and then creating a network of these missionary communities. So you weren't paid by the church at that point? You were bivocational? Or were no, you... I've, I've actually never been paid by the church okay. in 25 years. You know, we, we've taken, we got up to about a $2,000 a month stipend in the Denver story, but that was after five years. Okay. Um, so it was always a combination of raising funds and house painting, if you will. Okay. Um, as you know, the books come out, so, you, you know, you, you begin to make some money as a consultant, but you don't make much off books. No. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> That's what people don't understand like that. that. I mean, maybe 10, 15 years ago, from what I hear, you can make a decent amount. But now, unless you're in the top kind of 1%, which neither you yeah. or I are of, of authoring, you know, you can't really make living you can I mean, it's 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 awesome i i never thought i'd get a penny for writing i just love i unlike you i actually love writing and the, th- yeah, the idea like of getting I got some money like is 67 dollar checks i was like sweet we can go out for dinner <laughs> yeah. go for a burger yeah right <laughs> um so that was more that in was, Den- you know that was that was the story you know and right now that book that tangible kingdom book is still kind of i guess the underpinning of everything i would do that was when I kind of unveiled kingdom theology as I was reading it through Dallas Willard, that's okay. when I got a theological rework. Um, and, uh, and I still would say when people go, okay, where should I start with your books? I always go start with the tangible kingdom and then okay. kind of work your way through from there. Cause I think unless you have a kingdom theology rework, I don't think you'll end up being a very good missionary. Yeah. And I would read the divine conspiracy and other people that have written well on the kingdom. Yeah. What would you say to um, a pastor, a leader um, who is in a more traditional model who's listening, which might be 10% of audience, so maybe a few hundred people right now are probably employed by a a church. Maybe they're on formal non-paid staff or whatever. And and maybe they're like, man, everything you're doing sounds great, but here I am, you know, I got to preach a sermon on Sunday. I've got to, and this is how I make my income. And 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 maybe they would sit me and push back on some of the things, saying, "Well, no, we're still doing a lot of great stuff in a traditional model, all that stuff." So, how 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 yeah. who what would you say to somebody who is maybe in the traditional church system? Well, first thing I would say is just good job. You know, like I I feel like any pastoral role, you are taking one for the team. Nobody ever calls you because they're having a great day. And they just want to tell you, I mean, you're, if you're in the box, in the church box, and you're serving people, I think uh, you should be applauded. Whether or not you think the church is doing much or whether or not you like your role, I would say um, thank you for caring for God's sheep. But I'd also say, you know, everybody knows now our our world is changing, and the, the pastor, shepherd, teacher role is going to become the most frustrated role, um, especially when the church is not generally reaching new people. So 
I would just say look up, you know, see, um, maybe, maybe think about your life in view of the APEST. You know, maybe it's a lot of great testing now on whether or not somebody is apostolic or prophetic, evangelistic, more shepherd or teaching. If, if you take some of these assessments and you actually identify yourself more in the pastor, shepherd, teacher role, then I say you're, you might be in a perfect spot. So don't lament it. Um, embrace it. Um, we're going to need all different forms and looks of church to get this thing done. Um, but right now we need more looks of, of new wineskin. Um, so if you're in the old wineskin, if you will, um, remember God had a heart for both. He's, you know, he's trying to preserve both the old and the new. So um, if you feel like you're in your spot, then I'd say be content with it and just serve with joy. But if you are inside the box and you are constantly staring at the ceiling at night going, oh, I just feel like I'm missing something. Be open to the fact that God is opening up a lot of new ways of life for you in ministry and potentially business and uh, and maybe have the guts to look up and begin to, to find some people who are doing different looks of church. Hugh, are you, do you find, I wanted to ask you this earlier, who are some other people, orgs, organizations doing something similar to what you're doing? And I ask because I've got a, a few people, but a friend up in the Seattle area who's doing pretty much what you're doing. And I, I was talking to him the other day and, and he's like, man, I just feel like, I, is anybody else doing this? You know, I'm like, actually, I think a, a, yeah. quite a few people are. So can you give us um, maybe, yeah, some, some similar organizations or people yep. that are doing well, something similar? I will say um, just because the amount of denominations that are calling me to process this, I would say this is like a growing tidal wave, like the water's going out right now. But I think probably in five to seven years, you will see almost every denomination having some stream for bivocational or business for mission. Hmm. But it's it's very early on. Um, but the groups that are already doing it, I, I usually point people to the Underground Network out of Tampa. Uh, Brian Sanders just released a book called The Underground Church. And... Uh, in fact, the day I got the key to our building, I was actually flying out to speak and to be with the people in the underground. And I always tell people they they were ahead of us um, in a lot of ways to this Alton story. They actually coached us, and they actually received our building for us and actually covered all my admin for a year. Wow. And so I started to see what they were doing. They're, they're a network of over 200 micro churches now. And they do really weird stuff with their money. They essentially have a huge shared office space, warehouse, and all they do is they would call it a radical empowerment model. Every person, they're trying to help them figure out what their passion is and then empower them. Um, So that network, which also includes a group out of Birmingham I mentioned called Common Threads. Um, And within, if if you go browse around the Tampa Underground Network, you'll see seven I think seven or eight sites now internationally and nationally were considered one of their movemental sites. So that's kind of the network that we're a part of because that's the closest thing we've been able to find to kind of this weird thing. Um, V3 is also a church planting network that I'm doing a marketplace cohort for. And V3 is very progressive on this as well. I, w- I would take a look at V3. Yeah, I just had a, Dan, uh, I had Dan White Jr. on the podcast a few weeks ago. Yep, great. Yeah, so Dan, Jr. Um, I think they're going to be towards the tip of the spear on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, but you know, honestly, 
one of the benefits, as you know, Preston, speaking is you get to see a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. And I will, I will tell you, I run into people that are doing what I just started to do, but they've been at it for 10 years in their cities. Um, they're all over the place, but, you know, they're not known. They don't write books. Yeah. Um, but I could literally tell you a 100 people hmm. nationally that have literally went into to blighted downtowns and started buying up buildings and doing cool stuff and also reflect an essence of what church is in their yeah. environment. And then, I mean, so you're talking about kind of integrating ministry, entrepreneurship, um, more missional, kingdom mindset. But even beyond that, then you have a lot of churches and networks and movements doing more just kind of what you're doing in, in Denver, maybe more of a hyper simple, relationally driven, missionally driven yep. um, church rather than kind of more of an attractional, expensive model. So, I, I mean, from my yeah, vantage point, it does seem like I, I – if yeah, anecdotally, I've got way less experience with this than you do, but it does. I, I would. It's not shocking when you say, "Man, there's a there's a lot more going on here." The kind of a tidal wave building that um, it will be more yep. prominent in five ten years. Yep, agreed. So, I mean, in all those settings, if that begins to emerge, you, we will all intuitively go back to that more pure missionary community type of a framework for church, mm-hmm. um, and I think that will be a really great move for the church. I think that might be the only way that we're actually going to be able to relate with, with yeah. people around us that don't know Jesus. So here's an, another byproduct and we're, we're going to wrap things up in just a second, but um, he, I, I've often seen solid Christians who are in the marketplace, who are running successful companies, who are CEOs of, you know, uh, you know, b- successful businesses, whatever, who can be kind of frustrated at the traditional model of church. You got some 25 year old seminary graduate running this thing. And then, you know, you're looking at, you know, the the CEOs of businesses saying like, man, I could really help you with (laughs) a lot here. And they're like, they kind of get the stiff arm like, Oh no, you know, I'm the pastor, you know, just go ahead and sit and listen to my sermon, you know? And I I think this model can, include, empower, and learn from um, people with all kinds of crazy, amazing gifts that have felt like there's no real place for me in the traditional church. I don't, ah, I don't want to attend this community group or whatever. Or I, you know, I, I, just, I don't fit in the programs that are being offered. The leadership kind of looks down upon me because I'm not a pastor. I'm on seminary training, but yep. man, I'm managing 500 people throughout the week in a $10 million budget. I think I do. Is there something I could give to the church, to the kingdom? I think your model can really empower um, a, a good number of people that have been sidelined by the church. Yeah. In fact, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll tell church planting specialists or denominational guys that go, you know, to get somebody funded to plant a church is very expensive and it takes a hard or a long time to find that person. But you could save a lot of time and money if you just go find really great leaders and then teach them how to just lead missional community in their context. Because as soon as you, you take an, a CEO that's got 30 employees that has really done a great job loving those people, all he has to do is go, hey, anybody want to meet Tuesdays for lunch and just talk about life and faith? And they will fill up a, a boardroom. Yeah. And they're already right there doing what you call the planting activity. Yeah. So it's a lot easier to think about planting businesses or planting micro communities or planting missional communities as opposed to the idea of planting a church. Yeah. Yeah. Church is literally something Jesus said I build. So I go, okay, if Jesus said I'll take that pressure. He does ask us to then build and plant. You know, we plant seeds. We plant 
possible, we plant communities. That's way more doable for the average person, especially the really gifted leader. Uh, planting a church? Are you kidding me? Yeah. <laughs> like anybody, anybody has done it. Yeah, that's like selling rocks in a gravel pit. Like <laughs> I plant a really cool whiskey and theology night at my local saloon. Yeah, we can do that starting next week, and it won't cost anything. So. All right, last question on that note. Um, I'm a whiskey fan. You're a whiskey fan. What are your top five uh, favorite whiskeys and why? Well, I've always been an Irish whiskey connoisseur because it was cheaper. On occasion, my wife would let me take $100 and go buy as much whiskey as I could. So I learned I could get more bottles with Irish. (laughs) And I also liked the flavor profile better. And I have... Irish in me, and so I initially started there. I am becoming a connoisseur of all all fine, you know, fermented, where it's a long time. I just appreciate the process. Yeah. But uh, right now I'm having some fun. You know, I, I did some church planting stuff throughout the Caribbean, so I, for about three years I was a rum guy, huh. you know, learning everything about rum. I'm kind of enjoying some nice tequilas uh, right now. For me, it's a health food option. I, I got too fat drinking beer and chocolate <laughs> milk, so uh, whiskey became my my healthy alternative. Huh. Um, so wait, so, yeah. is, is whiskey healthier than beer, like uh, calorie wise? It's all same oh, calories, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh no, 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 no. Your your average beer is going to be 300 calories. Your average little spit of whiskey is going to be about 60. Oh wow! And so you're you're ultimately getting uh, way longer enjoyment for way less calories and yeah. actually quite a bit less alcohol. So um, you're able to avoid trouble that sometimes can happen around the alcohol issue. Sure. So for me, it's it's more conversational. It's uh it's more of a connoisseur uh, type of a drink than a beer. Beer, yeah. oftentimes you just you know, but. I find when I have a whiskey with a, with a fellow, the conversations are much more, um, I guess, um, I don't know. They're just, they're safer. Huh. They, they take longer. Yeah. Um, and people don't abuse the alcohol when, when you have a finer, finer whiskey in most cases. Yeah, I've noticed that. Yeah, you get a cheaper whiskey and usually you have a stronger pour, but a finer whiskey, like anything, you yeah, don't need you don't, it. Like, yeah, like hey, good, you don't want to you don't want to go through a great twenty dollars shot in yeah. five minutes. You want to make that sucker last. So right. it just to me it sets up the conversation way better. Yeah. Well, thank you for that a little whiskey tour, and thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I've been totally blessed and encouraged and challenged by it. Um, if people want to find you, I know you have a website, uh, HughHalter dot com. Is that the best place for people to go? Yeah. But I, I hardly do anything. So <laughs> they can find stuff. Um, occasionally I will post something on Facebook if I'm in a new city or speaking somewhere. Um, if they want to find any of the books, they can just Amazon my, my name and those will pop up. Uh, there's a few books on my personal website you just mentioned that are not on Amazon. Okay. But, uh, yeah, if they want to check out Post Commons, they can find uh, postcommons.com. Okay. And, um, I do have on occasion pastoral teams that come through and just want to spend a day processing. So if any people feel like that would be helpful, 
we're happy to account containment laboratory as well as uh, he's also a registered biosafety professional with the ABSA International. That's American Biological Safety Association. He was a lead trainer with the Duke Infectious Disease Response Training Program, D-I-D-R-T. There's just a lot of... <laughs> I'm reading this bio here because I have this stuff. I don't know. I don't even know what it is, but it sounds really awesome and prestigious. Um, he is a certified uh, Hazwopper Hazmat trainer, H-A-Z-W-O-P-E-R dash or slash H-A-Z-M-A-T. I don't know what that means. Uh, he's got over 15 years of experience working in high containment laboratories with high consequence pathogens. He's worked with anthrax. Um, other highly pathogenic avian influenza, um, like, like, you know, uh, flus and viruses or whatever, they're airborne. He, he's, he really knows a lot about, uh, the airborne nature of infectious diseases. Anyway, I can keep going on and on. He, he's, um, he, he's, yeah, anyway, he's, he's well learned and he knows what he's talking about. I, in this podcast, I, I just, I, he's just so, thoughtful, data driven, um, and for lack of better terms, balanced because even something like infectious diseases can be politicized. We just, we're, we're just as Americans, we especially are just, we can't help ourselves. We will politicize anything. You know, if somebody sneezes, we'll politicize it. If we go to the grocery store, we'll politicize the grocery store. We just prone to polarized politics. And John is, I think, really well balanced in that area. So anyway, Without further ado, let's let's die. Oh, oh, no! One more further ado. Um, I released this conversation on my YouTube channel. I'm I'm trying to resurrect my YouTube channel. I'm going to start putting more stuff out there. Okay, so if you go to I don't even know press and sprinkled um, in YouTube or whatever, you'll probably come across my channel. So if you want to watch this conversation, the raw footage of this conversation, you want to look at John, see how he talks. You want to look at me in my basement, then you can go to my YouTube channel press and sprinkle and look at this interview along with a lot of other stuff on that channel and stuff that I'm going to keep um, putting up on my YouTube channel. Okay. So now without further ado, I don't know, whatever that means. Um, uh, please welcome to the show for the first time, but hopefully not the last time the one and only John C. Bavona. I'm here with my uh, my new friend uh, John uh, Bovina. Is that how you pronounce your last name? I should ask that ahead of time. Bovona. 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 Okay. And um, what, what, so we you saw me from a distance, I guess, when I came and spoke at the church in um, in Dyer, Indiana, at Faith. Uh, is it Faith Faith Faith, Faith Church? Church. Faith Church. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, do you live in Chicago, or I know you work in? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm out in Northwest Indiana, but I'm 20, 30 minutes from Chicago. Okay. We're right Northwest Indiana, stone's throw from Chicago. Okay, so uh, why, why don't you tell us a bit about what you do, and then we're going to get into the whole COVID nineteen, and probably we'll just see where the wind blows in, in that conversation. But yeah. tell tell us what you do, your background, and yeah, what you do for a living. Sure. So I'm a senior biosafety officer for the University of Chicago. So I've been there for 20 years with uh, the Office of Research Safety. So I work for the University of Chicago, but I work out at Argonne National Lab. So there's a couple national labs in the United States, and one of them is here in the Chicagoland area. So um, I work at a high containment facility. It's called the Howard T. Ricketts Laboratory. So there's different biosafety levels. I don't want to get too much into the weeds, but one is the least hazardous and four is the most hazardous. 
So I work in a biosafety level three facility. So it's a high containment facility. We're a regional biocontainment um, laboratory. There's 12 in the United States and we serve the Midwest. Um, and we work with high consequence pathogens. Like if you think about from years, biblical times, the plague, mm-hmm. Yersinia pestis is technically the name. And then more, more recently is anthrax, right? Bacillus right. anthracis is, 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 is the, the virus. So that's anthrax. So that was from 2001, if everybody remembers the anthrax letters. Yeah. But to give a little history, so pre-9-11, anybody could work with any pathogens at any time. Post-9-11, we became very regulated. So we went from zero regulation to now we're probably a little bit hyper-regulated, but that's the world we live in. So not only are we working with high-consequence pathogens like anthrax, plague, high-path avian influenza, 1918 flu, that's been on the news a lot, so that's the Spanish flu, we work Mm -hmm. with that. Um, And then more emerging infectious disease, which brings us to the SARS virus, the new SARS COVID-2, which is, you know, causes the disease COVID-19. Yeah. So what we do is we're coming up with vaccines and therapies for, for, you know, a plethora of those pathogens. Okay. What I do, um, I'm a biosafety officer. So what I do is I train um, researchers. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Um, we kind of have the first part of training in this stuff is we, you got to do like a character, like a, a pathogen profile, like, okay, so COVID-19, how is it transmitted? What's the infectious dose? What's the incubation period? So basically from the time that you're exposed to you start having signs and symptoms, mm-hmm. uh, what type of personal protective equipment will protect you while you do this type of research? Um, so that's what I've been doing for probably uh, about 16 years and well, it's 20 years, but, about four years ago, everybody remembers the Ebola outbreak. Right. So Ebola came, and there was, um, in the hospitals, there was a bloodborne pathogen standard. So basically that is nurses, clinicians, doctors, therapists, they all knew how to be how to work safely around bloodborne pathogens, like bodily fluids, right? Mm-hmm. But nobody had experience in a clinical care set, you know, um, environment, like a hospital room, how to navigate working with patients with um, emerging infectious diseases like Ebola. Right. So if you remember, um, down in Texas, there was a nurse that mm-hmm. um, she was working with a patient and she contracted the disease. So nobody knew how to put the personal protective equipment on, how to take it off. There's, I mean, we live, but we are regulated. We, you know, we're step by step how you put, per, mm-hmm. you know, equipment on, how you take it off, how you work with it. Um, so we do the whole entire risk assessment, really soup to nuts, hmm. anything you do in a laboratory. So 2014, the National Institute of Health 
they reached out to people that worked in high containment facilities that were day to day putting on equipment, taking off equipment. And we were start, we started teaching people around the United States, clinical care workers, emergency responders, how to deal with infectious agents. Okay. So I got the opportunity. We did the whole state or the whole uh, Washington DC fire department because that's a high risk area at DC. So we went out there and trained emergency responders and we did um, a lot of the hospitals in the United States. So just a little background mm-hmm. about me is that um, um, there, I kind of felt like it was, this is a Christian program so I can bring Christianity into this, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I felt like that was my first Joseph moment where I was a small kid. You know, I lost my dad when I was 10. I, you know, so my mom, um, she raised me and my brother or me and my brother and my sister. We didn't have a lot. And here at the, at the, you know, the apex of this, I was in front of the Chicago Public Health, IDPH, all these hospitals from around the Chicagoland area. And I was doing the training Mm. just because that's what had been my expertise for years. So that's really what I've been doing the last 20 years. And then obviously the last couple months, you know, we're swimming in COVID-19 and all the research and protocols and the media and all that stuff. So So I got a bunch of questions already. So it was just, um, I'm going to say <laughs> for my audience that might not know a lot, and actually I'm asking for myself, <laughs> can, can you define sure. a few things? So let's start with pathogen. What, what, when you say pathogen, what, what does that mean? So I just mean an infectious agent, anything that can cause an infection. Like an example okay. would be flu. Everybody knows the flu. Everybody okay. knows the cold. So that's just a list of from a minor cold to something like Ebola, which okay. would be, you know, something that like has a, 50% mortality rate. So anything that can cause infection. Ebola is that high, 50% mortality. Yeah, that, wow. yeah, that's a 50% mortality rate. And that might come down a little bit, but um, during okay. the pandemic in Africa, it was around 50%. And then you use the term emerging infectious diseases. Is that right? What would what would constitute? Right. And is that just like a new one, like COVID-19? Right. Or? right on. So that would be something like in the last couple of years, we've heard of MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, right. or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. Those are things that have never been on planet Earth, and then they 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 pop up and um, these regional biocontainment laboratories because a lot of universities don't have the facilities to work with this mm-hmm. because if it's not known, you need to start at the top level of safety, right? You don't start off in some you know you know laboratory that doesn't have the best equipment and personal protective equipment. You want to start at the top, mm-hmm. and that way you do your risk assessment. And then if you can move it to, you know, other areas, you yeah. do that. From my understanding, and if I speak out of ignorance, just feel free to jump in and correct me, there's some kind of similarity between SARS, MERS, and COVID-19. Are they in the same family, or are they just yes, all but, new, or what's the – no, that's very, yeah, so they're all coronaviruses. They're all coronaviruses, so kind of okay. A family of diseases, coronaviruses. Okay. So coronaviruses have been around for years and years, but within the last, you know, 10, 15 years, MERS popped up. Right. SARS popped up. Um, so this does have some sim- similarities to SARS. Um, that's why it's called SARS-CoV-2. Right. Uh, but there are, because it's new, that's why I'm cautioning so many people based on one study or based on a past study it's new, so we're gathering information so fast, so quick, but it's it, the nature is it's going to change a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So we can take um, we can take a lot of information from SARS where we see like um, um, the epidemics, mm-hmm. you know, in different parts of the of the world where you see, a, a, um, you know, if you have like a bell curve, we can see about how long they last. 
So when we got this information, I know, I mean, we've been tracking this for, for months since last year, but the information that we were getting is, is probably a, from the start, it starts hitting your community. It's about a three or four month, you know, stint based on that. Now this could change. This could be a little bit longer, um, depending on some factors that we'll probably get into a little bit, you know, um, mm-hmm. later. But yeah, so it's a family of coronaviruses and that can be anywhere. The symptoms can be anywhere from just a minor cold. Mm-hmm. Um, to, you know, to death where people are really having a lot of people that have compromised immune systems, heart, lung, they're really struggling. Um, so also, which is new with this one, and this is why this research is so important is because in the beginning of this, there were many researchers throughout the world that said, I've been working with coronaviruses for 20 years Mm -hmm. and I've never heard of asymptomatic transmission. Is that... So is that the big is that the big deal with this one? Because we've had these outbreaks. Like I just learned recently, yeah, I mean SARS, MERS, Ebola, um, outbreaks of these kind of things have, are not unusual, and even ones that have killed more people. Is that what makes this one so unique? The asymptomatic, like people could have it, yeah, spread so, it, and we right. don't even know it. Absolutely. So that's that's um, if there's there's different you know triggers where it changes the game a little bit. Yeah. That's one of them. Okay. Is with being asymptomatic, meaning you can have no symptoms at all and you can transmit it. Okay. No cold, no cough, nothing. Because if you if but you have the, if, if you have the, the flu, you got the flu. Like you're throwing up, diarrhea. I mean, you feel horrible. Like you don't have. Nobody can have influenza and not have symptoms, right? Or it's very rare. I wouldn't say I wouldn't say nobody. Okay. But very, it's it's not it's not. It's abnormal to have the flu without symptoms. It's, okay. it's possible. Okay. Where this, I mean, you're tracking, I'm seeing between 20%, and it really is trending a lot with younger people. If you see some of the NBA athletes and stuff like that, they're like, yeah, I have it. I tested positive. I don't have any symptoms. The risk there is that, obviously, you can be asymptomatic and mm-hmm. see grandma and grandpa. Right. And get it, and you you, uh, you said a percentage. You, you, there's a a slight glitch in the in the in the um, internet. You said twenty to something percent or asymptomatic. Twenty to fifty percent because it's new. Wow. Any numbers that I throw are, are <laughs> at the best available at this time. So when I talk about, I'll talk about uh, morbidity date, morbidity rate. So that's that's the rate of infection. Mm-hmm. Mortality rate is the death rate. So that's all fluid because we don't have a lot of information. Okay. You know, even patient information is very limited. Even so you think, you know, a couple you know, thousands, tens of thousands of patients compared to millions and millions for flu. Right. So right. it's you got to be really patient with that. So so and I'm going to I'm, I'm going to try to just so my audience knows, I'm going to try to ask sure. questions that I think are popping up in people's minds because I hate yeah. it when I listen to a podcast or a YouTube video and like, oh, go there. And, you, and the guy doesn't go there. So um sure. So early on, people kind of compared it to the flu. And even right. even now, like statistically, I didn't see – I mean, this whole COVID thing has opened up all kinds of, you know, pockets of knowledge that I wasn't even aware of. I didn't know that like 50,000 people in America die from the flu every year. Is that in the ballpark? I mean – Yeah, that's a, that's ballpark, 20 to 60. And if yeah, that's so true, good. then what – is it just a rate of how many people that have it per people that die, the morbidity rate? Is is that yeah, why COVID-19 is so much worse? Because right now we're still, what, at 20,000, 22,000, right. you know, which is a lot in a couple months. But, I mean, it's it's. It, yeah. I didn't realize that we've been living with this for years. I mean, the flu killing a good Absolutely. number of people. Right. Let me just give you the difference uh, because you're right. Many more people die of the flu right now. I mean, right. 
right now, I think if you look at like a weekly, you know, snapshot, yeah. which is not a year, but weekly, COVID-19 is pretty high. Three or four, I've heard, you know, between three and 10, you know, of, of um, people are dying of that. But that's a really short sample size, right? Yeah. But the flu, remember with the flu is that we have um, a vaccine, which is not a perfect vaccine, but it really reduces the your symptoms. We have herd immunity. So that means that people everywhere have some sort of immunity to the flu. With this, nobody, it's new. There is no immunity. Nobody has immunity, right? Um, so when we talk about, there, there's, a, there's a thing in research with public health we call the reproductive number. So the reproductive number is one person may give it to. So if you think about the normal um, flu is about one to one and a half. So one person will give it to about one and a half people. Okay. With this, it's about one to three and a half. Oh, wow. So that's, that's a huge, huge game-changing difference. Mm-hmm. So, um, and why is that? Is it because it's transmitted through aerosols or we're not sure? Well, so that's debatable. Let's talk about that in a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Um, because I want to explain that there's a big, you know, there people jump on that bandwagon. Okay. But, um, the thinking now is because, um, it's, it has a low infectious dose. So everything is based with pathogens, infectious disease. It depends. On, there's a lot of it depends, right? Mm-hmm. So different pathogens have different infectious doses. So just an example, like anthrax, you need to be a lot exposed to a lot of particles. We'll talk mm-hmm. about that in a little bit. Okay. Where um, flu, it could be just a couple particles and you can get sick. With this, we don't know the infectious dose. There's the no, just because it's so new, even with SARS is pretty new. We don't know the infectious dose. The thinking is that it's really low because it's so stinking infectious, right? If we did not have, I know um, I'm pretty apolitical now. I used to be political in my younger days, but I'm very <laughs> apolitical now. I'm, my loyalties, and you've helped me with this too, my loyalties are really to the kingdom of God. My allegiance now is to, to God's kingdom yeah. and God's word. All right. But... Um, um, I forgot where I was going with that. <laughs> I'm <laughs> celebrating that, by the way. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. But yeah. um, so um, with with um, with the infectious dose, that's much different. Um, and talking about um, it got really political early on in regards to, you know, the curve, flatten the curve. Yeah, but, right. Know, um, Preston, if we didn't do this, we talk, I go to a regional biocontainment um, meetings every year. So the, these 12 facilities, you know, all around the United States, we meet once a year. We got canceled this year. We usually meet at Boston or Galveston. Those are the really big mm. um, containment facilities. And we talk about it's, a, it's, it's not if a pandemic will happen, right. but it's when a pandemic. That's what my training is, right? That's what we do every year. Um, and every year we say when this happens, it will completely be unsustainable. Um, every part of life, it will be unsustainable. Emergency rooms. Um, health care. So once you go above that peak, it's absolute chaos. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at New York, New York is really the only place right now where we're starting to flatten the curve there now. But for a good two weeks, they were bringing in ships, you know, um, to uh, it's for the, you know, in the Atlantic, just, think, you know, to where they were starting to treat patients there. The emergency rooms, they were turning people away. They had, you know, when you go to a movie theater and it's packed inside, you have turns that, you know, you have those things outside. They had that. So that is that would have been the game changer of all game changers in 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 
in uh, the United States is if we didn't do the social distancing stuff. Hmm. Um, so Chicago, I work with University of Chicago, which is one of the biggest medical centers mm-hmm. in the United States, and we haven't been above the curve. But the city of Chicago has been done. I mean, politics aside, they've been they did a pretty good job of telling people, kicking people out of parks. Um, it's still hit, you know, in general. Um, it hit the city, the African American community. Mm-hmm. It's pretty public, you know, information pretty hard. Um, because they, for some reason, um, on the news, they were saying, even the mayor was saying that there was a myth going around that um, African-American people couldn't contract the disease. So you had all this misinformation, um, and it was starting to peak. And the city came out, and they you couldn't go into parks. You couldn't mm-hmm. go jogging at city parks, stuff like that. So we're really starting to flatten it. But that is something that would have been unsustainable everywhere. Okay. So, so, so social distancing, you're – I mean, I think most people are like, yes, that's we should be doing that now. Like, you you would agree? Is there any debate about that? Or no, not at all. Yeah, I think that's just that's a to me uh, um, basketball now. That's a slam dunk. Okay, and that is just makes so much sense um, for because the the main thinking is that it's droplet transmission. So I'm going to get into the weeds a little bit okay. about droplet aerosols. Yeah. So basically, when when you have uh, uh, your secretions come out of your face, your nose, your eyes, so those are those are droplets, right? And the difference between a droplet and an aerosol is the size, right? So when I sneeze, my my droplets, the particles, are big enough so they settle with gravity. So they go in the air, um, and then they settle, right? An aerosol is smaller. So you think of a droplet like a sneeze, right? You sneeze, you can kind of see. 90% of the particles, and then they go down. An aerosol is smaller, really small, so it's like a smoke. So it goes with the ventilation system, right? Um, so that is that's the, the studies that are going now. We know it's droplet transmission, so meaning that I can sneeze in your face, and, and it gets in your mucous membranes, your mouth, your nose, your eyes, and you can get sick. Or I can sneeze, and I can pick my nose, and I can touch a door handle, and then you can touch that same door handle and stick it in your mouth, your nose, or eyes and get sick. So that's the slam dunk. I'm so creeped out, but keep going. <laughs> so that's what we know for sure, right? Okay. Um, what what the conversation now is, is it aerosolized? Because, so, because that, that – well, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. So getting into the weeds a little bit about aerosolization now. So, again, those are smaller particles. Um, and um, just because you can find a particle – you're seeing a lot of studies by people that are asking the wrong question. The question the media is asking is, is it aerosolized? Yeah. That's not the right question. The question is, can an aerosolized particle infect someone? Hmm. That's what people really want to know, right? Because it can be in the air, um, and we don't know the infectious dose. So um, we, with chemicals, we talk about, let me get this phrase right, um, salute, or dilution is the solution to pollution. Meaning as it dilutes, uh-huh. it becomes less hazardous, right? So the further I am away, so if I have COVID-19 and someone is six feet away and I sneeze, as it moves, it will exponentially, the infectious dose will exponentially go down, right? So I think I've seen things on social media that if you're running with someone and you sneeze and then it goes back, it's aerosolized. True. I've seen stuff in hospitals where they've measured certain areas where it's, they've seen aerosol particles. They've measured aerosol particles in a hospital room. True. That doesn't mean it's infectious, right? Those are two different questions, and those are really two important distinctions 
distinctions that people need to understand it. Just because it's aerosolized does not mean it's infectious. So it means it's, be, ah, go ahead. And that has to do with the amount of particles that are aeros- aerosolized and how many particles it takes to be infected. Is it, is it simply a quantity of particles or does it have to do with the potency of the particles once they're aerosolized or both? Both. Okay. Yes. So that's why you're not going to see any public health that people that know what they're talking about that say it's aerosolized. You're going to see some studies from, you know, a good corporation that wants to get on the news and say, hey, we, 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 uh, we, we, uh, did some air samples and we saw some positive hits. Mm-hmm. But that really depends because you can really pick and choose where you want to do sampling. You know, I saw one study where they went to a hospital room with three patients and they saw air samples. Well, you know, no crap, right? Mm-hmm. Of course you're going to get that. Can I say yeah. crap on your podcast? Sorry. You can say more than that if you want. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. um, but uh, of course you're going to find it. So, but the, the study is it's going to take a long time to figure that out because you have to remember we talked about earlier about the people that talked about asymptomatic, the people that did research for years. No, I've never seen it, and now it's between twenty and fifty percent. So they're going to have to do it in a laboratory. And one of the things that we call in, in, in research, we call proof of principle. Mm-hmm. So we can all do that with gravity, right? We can, we can put stuff, take a pen and mm-hmm. drop it. And we can prove that principle by doing it over and over again. And we can be 95% confident that if I drop a pen, it's going to, it's gravity is going to take it and it's going to fall. So the same is true with really any research that we do is that we need to prove the principle over and over. It needs to be peer reviewed. So that's going to take time. Mm-hmm. Um, to confirm aerosol transmission, not aerosol that's aerosolized, but aerosol transmission. Aerosol. Okay. So real practically, um, I'm trying, my wife and I were trying to reduce the number of times we go to the grocery store, but we do go, uh-huh. we've got to eat. So like maybe, maybe once a week, maybe yeah. once every week and a half, one, one yeah. of us will go out. And Idaho is among the more milder places. I think we had right. a 2% increase today, like 50 people have been tested positive. We're typically between a two to 10% increase every day. Um, sure. If, when I go to the grocery store and I walk by somebody um, and th- let's just assume they have COVID-19 and they're just, they're not sneezing off. I mean, if they did that, I'd probably renounce my nonviolence and hit them. I don't know. <laughs> but, but I mean, they're just breathing and, and say I'm a couple feet away. They have this virus. Right. Should I hold my breath? Should I wear a mask going? Is washing my hands enough? Is it, is there a really good chance I'm not going to get it, even if I breathe in a few of their particles? Or how would you, if you're, when you go to the store, like, what do you do? Yeah. So first, that's really low risk. So remember, we know for sure droplet transmission, which we talked about. So yeah. going to the grocery store, um, even going out in public, if you have a six feet, it's really, really low risk. Remember, we can't eliminate, we can never say zero. Right. You know, that we can say, we can't say zero for driving, right? Which, you know, is a much higher risk yeah. of, of, of driving and getting an accident. But when we go, me and my, me and my wife go grocery shopping. So we have to wear a mask in the Chicagoland area. Okay. So remember a mask. Let's get into the weeds a little bit now. So right. a mask is just for, it's not for your protection. You wear a mask to protect, to keep your secretions inside your mask, right? And it also protects the environment. So if you're sneezing or coughing, my droplets aren't going on the groceries, not going on door mm-hmm. handles. It's being contained inside my mask. 
So we'll talk about a respirator in a second, but for a mask, what a mask does is it protects other people, the environment, and to a lesser degree, it, 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 does, it can't prevent you from touching your face, right? I saw a guy on CNN. He was a, uh, he was a uh, pediatrician. And I love that all doctors can speak with expertise on this, being sarcastic. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, you know, I have a couple of brother-in-laws that build houses, and that would be have like an electrician speaking on like the foundation, yeah, right? Yeah. They're all in the medical field. But this pediatrician was telling that a mask does nothing for personal safety. And I wanted to do an experiment with him. I wanted to sneeze in his face with the mask on, and then I wanted to sneeze in his face without a mask, and I wanted to ask him which one reduced the risk, <laughs> right? Because it does reduce your risk a little bit. It does, right? okay. But it does, correct. But the main reason we wear masks, not respirators, the reason we wear masks is to protect the environment and protect other people. It does help you from touching your face because you have a barrier between your mucous membranes and your fingers, which could be potentially infectious. Um, and then if someone were to sneeze right in your face, you know, it could still go in your eyes, but you do reduce, you do reduce your risk from somebody outside. I just don't know when's the last time I or I've seen somebody else just sneeze in my face in a store. Well, I guess I'm more concerned with, yeah, I'm walking around the store and I, I feel, I literally feel like I'm breathing in just yeah. very low anthrax. Risk. Very, 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 very low risk to inhale something just because of that solution is, or dilution is the solution. Okay. So, you know, if someone were to cough and there were to be aerosol particles and you were a couple of feet away by the time it got into your breathing zone, you know, mm-hmm. but by the time you breathe it in, um, it would be so diluted, and we don't know the infectious dose. And the body is infect. It, the the route of transmission when it get into your when you inhale something uh-huh. is different than like your mucous membranes, and that's what we don't know yet. So oh. That is TBD to be determined because it's novel. We don't know how an aerosol because we we don't have you know we we know droplet transmission. We can study that in a laboratory. We can do that in clinical care in a hospital, but aerosol. There's no numbers there. So down the road, and it's going to take time, they'll have to do um, animal studies. Some of the people yeah. might not like that, um, but that's really that's really that knocks that. So we're not even sure if I'm passing somebody in the store and we're six inches away and we're just breathing the same air for that one second, they have COVID. I, I actually breathe in some of their particles. I, I don't touch cough. my face. I don't. They didn't sneeze on me or cough. We're not even sure if even then I would actually get it, even though we did kind of. Yeah, really what quick. I do know, I'm not going to give you any kind of like uh, blanket statement, but that would be very low risk. Okay. Not not impossible, yeah. right? So you, I don't want to get onto Dumb and Dumber. So you're telling me there's a chance, right? <laughs> but no, it's very low risk. I'll just say that. So I go in when I go into the store. I, I actually don't. I don't have a mask. I've got this painting mask that makes me look like Darth Vader. You know, I don't do that. Um, I, right. I, I, in my ha- hands, I hold these, um, these, uh, um, what are they called? The Lysol wipes. You know, yeah. I hold my, I hold a nice wet, sloppy, you know, you know, ninety nine point nine versus nine percent, whatever al- alcohol based. Right. And anytime I grab something, even when I push the pin pad, I'm, I'm using that as a barrier. I do keep my distance. I don't wear a mask. Um, I actually, <laughs> I actually have been holding my breath just like as I'm passing. So, so, so would you say, man, I'm I could get it? Of course yeah, I could. So but it's. 
Um, yeah, when I go grocery shopping, um, I don't wear gloves. Remember, your hand is a great barrier to disease, unless you have a cut or a nick. You know, that, yeah. that that prevents infectious disease with your hand. So when I go shopping, I do wear a mask because we have to. Have it's to, a yeah. general guideline. You know, so I do wear a mask. I don't wear gloves, but when I'm done shopping, I have hand sanitizer yeah. in my car, and I just sanitize, sanitize my hands. Remember, with hand hygiene, there's um, removal and disinfection, right? Mm-hmm. So when I sanitize my hands, I get it about 99% um, kill rate on my hand, but then 0.1%, it's still on my hand, right? So that's why washing your hands is the best thing. If you were to think about it, if you ever go to a beach. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And you had sand all over your body. You take a shower. That's removal. So you think if you had that in your hands and you run water over your hands, that will remove it. Disinfectant soap this is, kills it. So that's why the best thing is to disinfect and remove. Okay. Even if you were outside at a grocery store and you had no disinfectant, and you had, you know, no no means to wash your hands. This, you know, wiping your hand on your shirt or your pants removes. That That is a method of removal. It does. Think of a towel that removes stuff. The best is disinfection and removal. That's why washing hands is disinfection, and the water is removal. Okay. So you think I'm so doing pretty good with do, my what, – what, would, would you wear a mask if it wasn't required? Um. Probably to protect other people. I guess if I, because I knew it was asymptomatic, meaning that I would, I wouldn't know if I had it unless I was tested. Um, you know, sometimes, um, and this would be tough and it would be a personal decision, you know, conscious thing, but you know, I know there's a lot of scriptures that talk about, you know, consider others better than yourselves, especially with elderly. So I just think that principle mm-hmm. would drive me to do that. Okay. But for yourself, if you were worried about getting it yourself. Yeah, no. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. Even though it might, I mean, if you went in with rubber gloves, tons of Lysol, a mask, I mean, everything you're doing there is taking a tiny, is taking that percentage down, right? Right, right. And some people will email me, some of my friends will say, hey, this is what we're doing when we come in the house. And I'm like, I work with anthrax and I don't even take those procedures (laughs) every day. You know, so they're like, you don't? I'm like, no, you know, so. But it's the fear that people don't know. That drives the fear, right, Preston? One thing I've thought, um, I mean, right now, the percentage of confirmed cases against the mortality rate is what, 1% to 2%, um, 1%? Yeah, it's probably right around 2 But remember, too, that the infection rate, the known cases is the tip of the iceberg, right? Right. Maybe not the tip of the iceberg, but at least of uh, there's about 50% unreported. Well, and that's my point. Like, if, if we actually knew... If, 
all the people that actually have it, would the mortality rate be about the same as the seasonal flu? Could it be that 0.1% so or whatever? Um, it's the only thing that I would say is a little bit different is this disease is crushing uh, people that have compromised immune systems. Okay. So people that are elderly, this is this is the 18 month, 12 month out fear. You know, not fear that I have, but if there's no vaccine, no therapy, mm-hmm. the elderly. Um, I don't want to get too much into that, but that's a really risk. Right. Just because, boy, but they go to the hospital. Once you're on a ventilator. You know your your uh, your chance of surviving is yeah. easily below fifty percent with compromised immune system. So that's the one thing that is just yeah. crushing the elderly. Yeah, you know, right now I, I'm curious. I I just thought about this the other day. I mean, I, I we like my family and I we do things to boost our immune system. We take all kinds of stuff. The yeah. older you get, is there something a seventy, eighty year old can do to really? maybe get their immune system back to like a 40, 50 year old. I mean, if they just bombard it with like, you know, echinacea, silver, vitamin C, whatever, all these things you do. I mean, do you know much about that or? No, but I do know that there's the combination nature, nurture, right? Sometimes some people are just born with fantastic immune systems. Yeah. Um, We'll really have to work at it. So I think it's a combination of keeping a healthy lifestyle. That's really important exercise and vitamin, you know, vitamin supplements and vitamin D and, you know, stuff like that. But I think that really helps people that are in general in good shape. I think when you have compromise, you know, heart and lung issues, um, mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that is, um, in 18 months, two years, it's really going to be interesting to see what, um, what the mortality, the death rate will be. I don't know what it is, you know, yeah. but it, it could really take a toll. Yeah. Okay. So, as you look forward to May, June, July, next fall, um, and I'm not make, I'm not actually asking you right. to make a prediction um, at all, but how, what, what, how do you view the the, the near future? Yeah. Two months no, out, six months out. Do you have any kind of hunches or where you would yeah. put your money if you had a gun to your head? Right. Most those are that's the most prominent question. Besides the aerosol question, this yeah. is the question I get all the time. So I think it's going to depend. Right. We always say that in biosafety, it, it depends. So I think it's going to depend where you live. Um, I think it's going to depend how well. Um, so that I think that'll be the big, a big factor is where you live, you know, um, where um, in regards to how, you know, how, you know, how populated your area is. But I do. So I think and, you know, this is just a projection and this is really based on the experts, but just with my professional experience in it. And talking to a lot of virologists, immune, all the d- different doctors, epidemiologists that I talk with at the University of Chicago, I th- I'm hoping in mid-May that some of the bigger cities um, will be able to do a slow rolling open up, right, um, where they're going to could start opening up restaurants. They could start opening up. Uh, I don't know about. I think schools are going to be fall, right? I don't think there's going to be summer school. Right. I think restaurants may may open up, but I think there's going to be flexibility where a lot of the researchers that I'm talking to, and these guys are the best of the best, think that this might be a seasonal seasonal virus. They do. That's where they. Yeah. Okay. So, so just like the flu. So now you have the flu seasonal, and now you have the coronavirus seasonal. Oh wait, you're saying uh, seasonal like every year it's going to flare up in the winter time? Maybe not winter time, but seasonal. Yeah. Wow. So that's very very possible. Yeah. So I think. I think states are going to hold on to that, 
you know, stay at home order where it's not a one and done where there's going to be areas, especially in bigger cities, boy, in New York, they're not, they're not going to, they're not going to wait long. They, they, they waited too long. They're not going to do that again. Right. You know? So now if you're in Wyoming, Idaho, it's going to look a lot different. Yeah. There. You know, I'm really hoping that I don't want to get into any politics. <laughs> I don't mind talking about politics, but just about my political stance, but I hope that the science drives it. I was thinking before I was talking to you, Preston, that I, this is not a political statement, but I don't want the president driving my theology, and I don't want the president driving the science. The science. <laughs> That's a good point. Right? I just don't, I don't want that happening. Yeah. I want the experts to do this every day to do it, you know, and I want states to have you know, I think that's constitutional that the states have it, but yeah. um, I'm hoping it's like that, that they have the freedom to do that. Yeah. Who, who should uh, we be – like uh, Deborah Burks, uh, Anthony Foshi, uh, are, are they yeah. – do you say like, man, yeah, these are as as good as they get. These guys are really oh, – absolutely. Okay. And I've been hearing their names for years and years. Really? Those guys, those guys are spot on. A lot of the conferences we do – that's who comes. That's our keynote speakers. People like that. Really? Okay. Probably not a lot of excitement for most, but when these guys come, like the heads of NIH, NIAID, their National Institute of Allergy Infectious Disease. Can, can we just dabble in the politics just to keep our audiences? Sure, absolutely. I don't mind talking yeah. about it. Well, what no. are your What are your What are your personal thoughts on how, in as much as you followed it, on how Trump has handled everything? Yeah. So um, I think he gets out of no. There's some really good things that I like about about the president, you know, um, but he gets way over his skis on some of the science. Yeah. I think he gets way over his skis when he talks about medications that will work or not work. It's just too early. It's just, you know, yeah. it's, I, I, want, I don't want him answering those questions, yeah. you know. But I think in general he was, um, um, he was ahead of the curve for, I, I don't know why he wanted to shut down China. You have the the one spot side of the spectrum that will say um, it was a fantastic move. And the other one will say, no, he's just, you know, he's being racist and stuff right. like that. But he made the right decision. I was telling people early, early on that they need to shut, shut off all travel. This is way before the politics we're talking about, you know, the politicians we're talking about, because I know once you, once you start it, it you, you, you can't stuff it back in the bag, man. You can't do that. Yeah. So I think he's done some good things. But that's just who he is, right? He he fights with everybody. Yeah. Um, um, I mean, he's kind of he's kind of incapable of not being overly confident in anything that comes out of his mouth. It's just kind of, I mean, that's just kind of his enneagram. I mean, it's, he is. And yeah. There's some good things about that, you know. I mean, how many people are fed up with politicians saying one thing? Don't, so that part of that is refreshing, you know. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to this stuff. Boy, my biggest fear is that when he said he was going to open it up around Easter, I was like, oh, my goodness. You said that way too. That's not even possible. No, it's not even th yeah. not, okay. No way. So, yeah, so there's some things that I like and just, you know, um, historically with him since he's been president, there's some things that I like. But there's – I just don't want him driving this bus, man, because <laughs> I think he – and he's a politician, right, left and right. They Their, their life right. is at stake. And there's an election coming up and – yeah. So I'm not naive to think that people aren't going to do stuff that will make or break their, you yeah. know, their policies. But. I don't, from my vantage point, I don't, I don't follow politics enough, and I'm certainly not a scientist to even voice any kind of authoritative position. But I don't, I mean, yeah, he closed down China and Europe in like late January, and from what I know after the fact, I think even, I think even Foshi, Foshi is that how you say his name, Anthony Foshi? Yeah. 
I, yeah. I think even he was like in late January, like, yeah, it's not like kind of down. Like, I don't think Trump was the only one no. in the world that was like, sure. not a big deal. And, uh, like if, if he closed down the economy in late January, he would have gotten crucified. I think no matter what he did, he would have gotten crucified. So I don't, absolutely. maybe he we waited always, too long, maybe not. But I mean, I don't did. Every, I mean, what about Italy? What about China? What about, you know, Iran? What about like, everybody's trying to scramble to do the right thing. It seems right, like, absolutely. so I don't know. I mean, we always say um, with this, darned if you do and damned if you don't. Totally, right? yeah. Um, and to get a little more, this uh, this um, this is more coming out with the, the research, is, and even doc, Dr. Burke said this. She's the lady that the information that we were getting from China up front yeah. was, was not on target. I mean, that's a whole other thing. So you make decisions based on the best information that you have, right? Mm-hmm. So. Dr. Burke was saying that she was in Africa and she heard that 50,000 people in China had COVID-19. So they're like, oh, my gosh, how many people are in China? A billion and a half? Right. I don't know. 50,000? That's nothing. Right. So why would they even think about closing anything? Okay. So now we see how infectious it is. They wouldn't let CDC in for months, you know. Wow. So, I mean, they're a closed society. They're a communist society. So, you know, there's probably some advantages to that, but there's a lot of disadvantages when you're a closed society. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think, and, I think when this is all said and done, you're going to really. So, so what's, what's the deal with China up. not having like any cases, hardly any cases in the last month. Is that just a blatant lie that everybody knows, but is scared to say something about, or, I mean, that just, I mean, either they're just killing it and how they're addressing this or they're lying. Is there another option? I mean, I don't <laughs> No, I think those are those were the two options. Now, remember, because they're a closed society, they could shut everything down like that. Yeah. But I think that helped, but I don't think that they were transparent at all. I mean, now it's like, yeah, we had 50 cases yesterday. I'm like, really? 1.25 billion people? You had 50 cases? Like, <laughs> it just it doesn't, you know. I don't know if you ever remember talking to me when you were at faith, but one of the things that I told you is I like the quote that you said where it says, wherever the scripture leads, that's where I go. Yeah. yeah. You know, whatever my bias was, and I grew up in kind of a charismatic church. And so some of the theology that I look back, I'm like, wow, that didn't, you know, they didn't have the Bible as the foundation, right? Like you bounce it off. So my thing with this whole China thing is wherever the science goes, that's where I'm going to go. Okay. And yeah. it's just not good science to say 50,000 cases and it's spread like it's a pandemic based on 50,000 cases. Those are self-contradicting statements. Okay, so I read this book <clears throat> called The Deadliest Enemy by some epidemiologist. Is that how you say it? Epidemiologist, um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Mark, I forgot his name. It, fascinating. It, uh, published in 2017, and he was talking about exactly what you said. Not if, but when. And he even said it's probably going to be a coronavirus. It's probably going to come from China. It's going to spread like wildfire. And he even has this whole section where he's like giving a fictitious scenario of what's going to happen. It's almost like he's quoting almost word for word like what politicians are doing, this, that. I was like, this is eerie. And he in that book, he talked about the combination of um, density of population. Um. Uh, even moving into areas where these diseases exist, jungles or whatever, and we're kind of stirring it up. Or even, you know, I, I know bats and other kind of different creatures are kind of carriers for these kind of things. As, right. And as animals and people become more intertwined, he says that he was basically saying it's just we're going to keep encountering viral pandemics. Right. I mean, th- this is like 
maybe even above climate change, like this is kind of the thing we should be really concerned about. Yeah. Would you no. totally resonate with yeah. a lot of that? Or Absolutely. I mean, wet markets is like the perfect storm where you have just, you know, for people that know wet markets, it's just, you know, we have butchers, we get our meats at the, you know, supermarket. There's some places in China where in Wuhan specifically where they just skin animals alive and they hang them up and you look at it like you have a piece of fruit, you put it back and the next person does the same thing. And so, yeah, I mean, you are, boy, you're, you're increasing your risk big time for pandemics, especially in a populated area like China, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are not the best of both worlds. That's for sure. So what's the, what do we, how do we, um, how do we prevent another one of these things from happening? Is that possible? I mean, yeah, I think, so I think what will happen next time is especially if it depends where it comes from. So if it's, if it's an area, you know, Europe, um, people that have, you know, open societies where people are upfront with what's going on, I think you'll get better information. But I think if anything ever happens from, you know, just in general, you know, communist countries, um, people are going to shut it down really quick. They're not going to take um, their word for it just because they have their own to protect. Okay. So I think that'll be different. No matter where it's at, I think people will shut down stuff really fast to protect their countries. What what are your thoughts on um, when will we start going back to church or maybe more generally, and this is really pertinent to me as someone yeah. who makes a living off of speaking at large gatherings, yeah. will we be gathering in large settings, NFL, you know, major league baseball, church yeah. gatherings. What are your thoughts on that? When's that going to happen next? Not until we have a vaccine or. Yeah. So that's a really good question uh, because we go to, a, I go to a large church, you know, mm -hmm. they have three different services of a, at least 500 or more. So I think that this year we're done with, I don't think you're ever going to, this calendar year, I'd be shocked if in late fall we had concerts, you know, really football games for sure. The summer, you know, maybe, you know, because without a vaccine, you get in those gatherings, press, and, and it just, you know, think about 60,000 people in that infection rate of one to three, three and a half. I mean, that that's like those numbers are worth, it's like a hockey stick, exponential growth overnight, right? So I don't know. That's a good question. I do, I do think they're going to roll it out. So I think if you remember when they shut it down, it was 250, 100, yeah. and 10. So I would... I even told our pastor, I said, I don't know, you know, when they're going to open up to 250 or more. And we have above the 250. So I said, just th start thinking about that. I'm, that's not my call. And that's not my expertise. But um, I know, you know, with the, the bigger groups that you get together, it can it, it can exponentially, that growth can go up exponentially. So what if what if they had. What are those masks? And uh, is it N95? Yeah, so N95s are respirators, right? So oh. those people can't even find those. You know, we I work in a high containment lab and we can't order them. Okay. So N95s, I'll get into the weeds a little bit. So N means that it's not for oil, right? The 95 means that it's 95% efficient at filtering particles that are, I'm going to get into the weeds, that are 0.3 size in microns. So I'll explain that a little bit. The most penetrating particle, I feel like I'm, this is good information. This is great. I love it. I, lo I love the specificity <laughs> of it all. So I, I don't understand <laughs> it all, but this is great. No, but this is the stuff I train on every day. So <laughs> the most penetrating particle is the particle that is 0.3 microns in size. 
Um, so if you think there's a million, for every meter, there's a, mi a million microns, right? So the most penetrating particle is the one that's 0.3 in size. There's a whole science to it, but I won't get into the weeds. So an N95 is 95% efficient at capturing the, uh, um, a 0.3 size mi uh, particle. So the efficiency, if the if the agent is the particle is bigger than 0.3 or smaller than 0.3, your efficiency actually increases from 95 to higher. Okay. So we've all heard of HEPA filters, high efficiency particulate yeah. air. We have them in the house. Those are 99.97% efficient efficient at capturing 0.3 microns particles. Mm -hmm. And then if your dust is bigger, particles bigger or smaller your efficiency is greater than that 99.97%. Mm -hmm. So that's what an N95 is. That's for a respirator. So an N95 respirator, that's really, really important that um, clinical care workers work it, use those, because those are not only for droplets, but those are for aerosols. Okay. The reason it's really important for hospitals is because they do procedures that they aerosolize people's secretions. So when they intubate people, you know, they're, holes and skins skin mm -hmm. and then their 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 uh, secretions are aerosolized they're like mm -hmm. like a gas that comes out so that's why it's so important for those guys to have the proper personal protective equipment and not for me um going to you know walmart to wear an n95 where these hospital care workers can't find them so, so that's a little difference between a mask and a respirator this is maybe a, a different kind of question but who why aren't we just mass producing these N95 things? How come we're not opening up companies everywhere? I mean, do people make a killing off of being, yeah. you would just think the market would be flooded with people right. making these things. Is it that hard yeah. to make them or what's the? Yeah. So there's a lot of regulation. So respirators are governed by NIOSH, the National Institute of Occupational and Safety Health. So they oversee respirators manufacturers. So you can't just open up your, you know, outlet mall and start building respirators because when you wear a respirator, you have to have medical clearance to wear them, and you have to be, like, tested to wear them to make sure that they fit, you know, um, 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 efficiently so you're not breathing in particles. So there's a lot to respirators. So um, I know 3M has been in the news a lot. North, there's a handful. There's only a handful of companies that make respirators because the supply or the demand has never been, right. you know, so high where it is now. So they're playing, playing catch up and it's worldwide press and every yeah. world, worldwide, uh, hospital clinics, they're, they're wearing this. These respirators are designed and manufactured for one time use and then you throw it away. Oh, that's it. So one time and to throw it away. Well, now hospitals are at a stance where it says, okay, now I have a decision to make as administration. I'm going to have them throw I, – I have – just throwing around numbers. I have 100 respirators, and I have three nurses. Those are going to last me one, two, ten days. I can't get any, you know. Um, a lot of them are made in China or, or other places. I can't get any. So now I have to make a decision for my clinical care workers and say um, no respirator or you have to reuse the respirator. So this is the, if you, I don't know if you get asbestos commercials over in Idaho, but it says, were you exposed to asbestos 30 years ago when you are at school? And you can sue. So this is going to come in the next five years because clinical care workers are being asked to do something to wear respirators over and over again. So With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The N95. Yeah. There are other respirators that you can reuse, but N95s are designed for one-time use. Can't. I mean, can't some – what if somebody created the N90 mask? It's not N95. It's an off yeah, so there are, I, Yeah, know. so there are different respirators. So um, there are – they're called um, N100 or P100s. Okay. So they're 100% efficient. But those are still one-time use. If you've ever seen like a half-face respirator, so they kind of go over your half your face yeah. or a full face, they have cartridges yeah. called – one P100 cartridges, so they're four they're HEPA cartridges, and those are for repeat use over and over and over. Again. Right. I have told so many people, so many hospitals, if you order them now, when something happens, they're a little more expensive. So N95s, you can buy twenty for twenty bucks. You know. You oh really? 20, okay. Now they're on eBay. I sell them for like twenty for five thousand bucks. People trying that, <laughs> which is just crazy. That's a there's a. Uh, all right, I gotta stay focused. Capitalist man, we'll do the anything to make a buck. <laughs> so, but I've been telling hospitals get these N95s. So when someone comes on, you spend a hundred dollars on a respirator, and they have it for the rest of their life, mm-hmm. for the rest of their career. There, they can you know have it. But again, that's a people don't make financial decisions short term. So here's a fictitious scenario. What if by August? We've got tons of N95 masks available. Like there's just there's if you want one you can get one. Right, and right. say I'm going to put on a conference. And or, or let, let let's let's just say oh, any sure. kind of gathering over 200 people, it's required that everybody wears one of these masks. Maybe even they're required to wear leather glove or leather <laughs> rubber gloves. They've got a mask on. They have to sit 6 feet apart, whatever. Like could we if the if the if the products were available, is it theoretically possible that we could get back into larger gatherings, but take some of these precautions to coddle it? Some of the precautions you mentioned, yes. Respirators, so you need to you can't have facial hair. Oh. You know, so if you have a beard, you can't wear them. You got to be fit tested by you got to go to a clinic or someone like me who's a biosafety officer that tests you. Okay. Oh, so okay. It would just, I don't know oh. if we could sustain that. We could do the six feet, the mask thing, you know, that would make sense. And that would really reduce the risk of large gatherings. But when I say large gatherings, you could reduce the risk of, you know, place of 250 where you sit every six chairs. Is, yeah. And, or you, you fill up every six chairs. So, because we, yeah, so. And that might, that might be, that, that, that could be. So I just throwing out scenarios. You know how they throw out models? They throw they show the worst case and best case. So that could be a model that we live with for the next couple of years about social distancing on and off. So a room, where you live. a room that holds 500, we say we're only going to let 100 in. Um, so, so I mean, just to get really 
personal and practical. You know, we, I, um, a big thing that we do through our ministry is doing, you know, gatherings where we talk about sexuality, gender, anywhere yeah. from 150 to 350 people. And one thing that we've just, just literally today tossed around is what if we actually said, we're going to cap these at 100 people in a room that holds 500 people and just do maybe two in a row, like day one, day two, yeah. ton more work on my part. Um, but it's, yeah. I, could something like that be feasible where we just, yeah, that will be, yes, but it'll be driven by public health because public health, they're going to make the rules. Right, they're totally. going to say yes or no. So if they say something like that, like you have to have a, you know, someone can sit every, unless, you know, if married couples can go in or some families can sit mm-hmm. together, but if you're not family, you know, it's every every sixth chair or something like that. Possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Know? Wow. So you think, though, I mean, just in general, church gatherings, large gatherings in 2020 are kind of. I just told I told my pastor, just pr- think that through. It might not happen. Yeah. But I think I think preparation is a good big biblical principle, right? Just to totally. think things through. Hey, what, where are we at? And stuff like okay, that. Now, what about the second wave? So here's from a from a naive perspective. I think, OK. Let's say we flatten the curve, we reduce the number, there's few, fewer and fewer people getting it, but people still have it. Once yeah. we start opening things up, it's just going to, from my vantage point, it just seems like it's going to start growing again. So, like, it seems like this whole idea of a second wave of cases is inevitable if we open up society to any extent. Is yeah. that? I think as not as it is now, yes. So there's so much money that's being flooded into infectious disease research now. I work with a guy by the name of, uh, he's a, a doctor from Ghana, uh, Dr. Oseosu, and he's a Christian. And he told me, he goes, you know, if you think about it, a white man's disease from a European uh, disease. I said, well, what do you mean by that? He goes, well, if you think about, um, I'm sorry, a black man's disease, he said, from, from poor countries, because if, in general, um, the white man's disease is cancer, and there's so much money, and there should be. We all are affected by cancer, and there should be so much money for that, right? Mm-hmm. But in general, infectious diseases are third world, mm-hmm. Africa, Asia, and we there's not a lot of there's never been funding. Republicans, Democrats, they don't fund it. Now we have so much funding, you know, because it's in our backyard. But it was a really good point, and it was a perspective from someone that didn't grow up in the states and saw how much money goes to cancer research. Yeah as opposed to where he grew up where people died from infectious diseases every day and right. there was no money. Wow. So, um, but to get back to your point, I think that will, what's going to be different hopefully the next time is that we'll have therapies um, or a vaccine, mm-hmm. you know, to um, mitigate um, a lot of this um, exposure. Can I, um, <clears throat> can I ask a really controversial question just because I dabbled in it in one of my recent podcasts what are your thoughts on vaccines? <laughs> yeah. You have the, it's not, it's not controversial to me and I am, uh, that's what I do. So let the bias be known that I work in you know, with vaccines and I have seen, I mean, if you think about measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, smallpox, these things that have been eradicated, from the United States and the world have saved millions and millions of lives. Um, so to me, it's a no-brainer for vaccine research. Um, when you talk about risk-reward, the risk of taking a vaccine, the numbers of people that have um, issues with vaccines are so low 
that if people lived their life with that risk, they'd never drive, they'd never go out in the storm, they would never eat fat, they would never drink a beer, they would never do any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So if you're talking from a scientific risk-based information, um, uh, vaccines um, are fantastic. The only caveat here is where, where people, um, um, in my opinion, they have a little information is the flu vaccine. We don't have a universal flu vaccine, right? right? So we don't have a vaccine that works because people still get sick. Um, so that is, that is, I see that argument not for safety, but for um, how effective it works. Right. And they use the flu so, as an example of these don't even work that well anyway. They don't even work. Right. right. Or I knew a brother's sister's mother who infected or vac- vaccinated their kids and now they have some disease. And if you do the genetic testing, they'll tell you, no, it wasn't from the vaccine. It was from this or that. I mean, okay. science, technology is so good now where you can pinpoint 99%, not 100%, but you can pinpoint where diseases come from and and how they enter and yeah. stuff like that. So, so what is yeah, what is be, the best, if there is a best, in your opinion, the anti-vaccine argument? Because so I addressed this question on a podcast, and I got a flood of people on both sides just shooting me uh-uh, stuff because I haven't done a lot of research on it. Um, what is what is the best anti-vaccine argument, or do you think there just isn't one? Or what? Well, why are so many people anti-vaccine? I don't know. I mean, Preston. You know, we live in a world where, um, so if you think about an el- older generation, everything, basically everything they got on the news was good information, right? So if you grew up in the 50s, 60s, you saw the news and it was good information, right? There was three sources. A lot of that stuff was vetted, peer-reviewed. Hey, let's take it to the news and let's send it out. Mm-hmm. Now, nothing is peer-reviewed. Not, I mean, on the news, it's not. They run with stories where it's garbage. You know, national stuff is garbage. It's so political now. You know, everybody's got an agenda. Um, the truth is not. Truth doesn't matter anymore. And now we have social. Now you add social media, which I've seen so much information on social media just in regards to COVID nineteen that is garbage and is wrong, but it's passed on as truth. So to me, the anti-vax starts. So let me. So I was listening to a behavior scientist talk, um, and he was talking about that um, when we get noise in our life, right? And we're promised noise in this life, right? That's a that's a promise that one of the promises that we don't love from God. <laughs> in this life, we're going to have trouble. So when there's noise come, if you have bad information, so I want you to kind of look at this in the audience to look at this from a spiritual perspective, but also from a practical perspective. You have noise in your life, a disease, death, whatever the case may be. If we don't have, it's important to get good information. So from a spiritual perspective, that's the word of God and people that know how to teach it right. Mm-hmm. From, from, um, from a, uh, um, a worldview, it's getting peer, like science, getting peer-reviewed information, getting news that's from trusted sources, right? Mm-hmm. So if you have bad information, and then you add either control or lack of control. So um, from a biblical perspective, we know there are certain things that we can control in our lives. There's some things that we can't. But there's a lot of things that we can really do to, you know, um, help from whether it's practical grocery shopping or, you know, just practical spiritual stuff. So if, if we have bad information, so we have fear and panic, or if we have fear, 
noise in our life. We get good information and we prepare. What that does is it reduces fear in us. It reduces panic in us. Um, and it reduces, we call it overbehaving, where you actually increase your risk. As a Christian, you it can increase your risk to other people. Great example is toilet paper runs. What, are, what doesn't make sense? People are buying so much toilet paper that you can't go to the store to get toilet paper. Yeah. So that's a silly example. But if you think about um, stuff that people really need, medicine, food, you know, you overbehave because you get bad information, it, it, it makes no sense. So I really think an anti-vax stuff um, or anything that is just whether it's from a biblical, you know, mm-hmm. worldview um, or scientific, it, you got to get good information. Mm-hmm. It's so important to get you know, trusted information. And I just think, I don't know if we'll ever get back to getting good information so, just because it's so political. So what are the claims though? Like where they are, I, I still, I haven't done a lot of research into it. I, well, I, I just think, you know, just the aerosol we talked about, it's aerosolized, it, you know, not even talking about the transmission. I've seen stuff about masks. Are you talking about the vaccine or? The or, anti-vaccine, the people, why wouldn't, why do CPU, yeah. why are people still yeah, against it? The anti-vax is that it doesn't work or it, it causes autism or causes some sort of, you know, disease in my kid. I think those are the two big things you know and you're saying there's no evidence there's no evidence for that or at least it's the risks are so minor that it's yeah you know i'm not ever going to say that if you do a million vaccines that there might be some issue with one right but that's with anything that's Mm -hmm. with eating pizza Mm -hmm. right you could eat pizza and and die because of something that was food poisoning right you know so when people start making that risk to be much bigger than it is compared to what it does you go to there is some memes out there that we do in the, vac- the, the pro-vaccine where you have someone from Africa looking really crazy at Willy Wonka and saying, so let me get this straight. You guys don't believe in vaccines, but, you know, um, where all those people are dying there, right? They're like, so just a disconnect from third-world countries where they're, they're dying every day because they don't have measles, mumps, rubella. They don't have these basic things that our kids get. We don't even think of it. You know, I, 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 um, so I'm 49 and I want to think about, I can't think of the disease that in the seventies people had, but, um, I forgot what it was. I don't want to get into a tangent, but I remember kids had this and then a vaccine came out probably in the sixties and seventies and it's eradicated basically mm-hmm. polio polio. Oh, I remember yeah. going to school in the early seventies and I had a, um, a friend whose sister had polio. You know, anybody that has polio, maybe a handful. And it was rampant, right? And that's because of good vaccines. I just so what, know, what if someone said is, well, why do I need to vaccinate my vaccinate vaccinate my kids against polio since it's already been done away with? Yeah, so the same thing is true with measles, but you're seeing it start come back. And a lot of times, not all the times, but a lot of times, it's from the anti-vaxxers where you're starting to see little outbreaks in certain areas, and it's kids that didn't get measles, hmm. you know, um, or you know, um, vaccinations. So it's possible, right? But so um, I just think that the, the information, to me, it's a it's a slam dunk. And I'm not talking a hundred, you know, a yeah. million out of a million, right? But if they rate that with all the other risks that they take every day, mm-hmm. it's just the risk reward to me is, is just because I've seen, I've seen it work, right? You go to conferences and you see rates that are thousands in countries, and then you see vaccines come in the countries, and then it's zero, or it's mm-hmm. one, or two, or one, you know? So you see the data, and you got to be driven by data with these arguments. Do you think polio, uh, TB, 
um, measles, mumps, mumps, rubella, rubella, sorry. Um, Are they making a comeback because people aren't vaccinated? Are they starting Um, to creep back in? I haven't done too much research, but I know there's been um, uh, studies of measles coming back. Okay. You know, not large. You know, and measles is airborne, right? That's one one we do know that's transmitted droplets and airborne, right? Oh wow! So yeah. remember about vaccines too. I had a my brother-in-law. Um, he he was not anti-vax, but he he didn't get the flu. He didn't get the flu vaccine. And I said, Jeff, and he's a Christian, and I said sometimes it's not about you. Sometimes it's about the other people, mm-hmm. right? So you might not think it's effective. You might get the flu. You don't get the vaccine. You get the flu a little bit stronger than you normally would. Now you go see grandma and grandpa, mm-hmm. and you give it to them. So, again, that's a Christian principle, too, to consider yeah. others better than yourself. So that's another argument, I think, from a Christian perspective. And it's personal, you know, too, so I get that, and I don't want to take anybody's conscience away, conscience, but I just think that there's so much information about how it can not only reduce um, your risk, but mm-hmm. other people's, you know, people that we love or people that we don't, you know. Yeah. So. Well, John, I've taken you over an hour, and we've got we've had so much to chew on. This has been so. I do, but helpful. hold on, you can't. I I, I have one question for you. Yeah. I need a theologian for this. So before <laughs> we end, can I ask you this question? Absolutely, anything. Okay, so I see um, everybody's Facebook post is COVID nineteen is less than Psalm or is Psalm ninety one, oh, right? God. That's that God will protect you from the plague and. Um, he'll keep your tent. And, and there was a pastor in Virginia that met, right? And he yeah. quoted Psalm 91 and he said, We're, God's bigger than this. He, he died. Yeah. Right. Um, mm-hmm. um, so people in churches have done that and died. So where is that? So I, I I'm not a theologian like yourself. Yeah. But where is, where is that? I mean, is that just like a statement of, it can't be a statement of fact. Right. It's not an absolute promise. Psalm 91. I've, I've had people quote Psalm 91 to me. What's interesting is they don't seem to be aware of Psalm 88, which Psalm 88 is the one Psalm that um, just talks about nothing but like, God, where are you? There's these trials happening. I'm being persecuted unjustly. You don't seem to be present. The end. Like it, there, there is no. Unlike most psalms, it doesn't even end on a, on a, a promise of hope. So you have this right. spectrum within the psalter of these kind of seemingly absolute promises. You will protect me if, if we love you. You'll come through to right. psalms of despair, like Psalm eighty-eight. And I just feel like we should never take one psalm, you know, take it out of the bookshelf and apply it to this one situation as if the author of Psalm 91 wrote it to speak directly to COVID-19 in the year 2020. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's, um, I mean, if you read my, my wife um, had somebody talk to her about that Psalm and she came to me really troubled. She's like, re- like I'm disturbed by the Psalm. Are you saying like, if I love God, then I won't get this disease. And if I get this disease, it means I don't love God, which is a clear implication. If you take this Psalm and apply it, that's just insane. Like that's, can you imagine how distorted of a view of God you're promoting? If you map that Psalm directly on our situation. So I I think we should take 
the Psalter as a whole as this variegated perspective on the trials and blessings of life. And I just don't, I'm just nervous about taking one Psalm, one verse and applying it to this situation. Um, I mean, I don't, I would, it would interrupt my faith if I thought Psalm 91 was designed to be directly applied to this position, especially if my Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Daughter got COVID-19. Yeah, and now the, right. the, the logical implication is she doesn't love God. She is an enemy of God because that's clearly what this says, that Psalm 91 says. Yeah, no. The diseases fall on the enemies. Now, I, I confess, I don't know how do we apply Psalm 91. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. There's a specific historical yeah. context I haven't looked into. Right. All I know is it's theologically um, irresponsible to take this psalm and just, yeah, post it on Facebook yeah. and say, here right. is the Christian psalm for COVID-19. So, yeah, as yeah. passionate as you are about vaccines, I am about misapplying. No, <laughs> I appreciate that. No, and, and I do want to I, I wanna say this, too. Before we wrap up, I just kind of, I just want to charge the church to whoever's listening and, you know, as. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. You know, an image bearer, and we believe that, you know, um, our allegiance is with Christ, is that, you know, when we have the Word of God, that's the foundation, and the church should continue to engage, right? Um, and not to be fearful, but to have love, power, and a sound mind. And also, we're going to need to learn to adapt, man. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of churches that they can't think outside their church building. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a, kind of the perfect opportunity to look at everybody's ministry and say, hey, yeah. we need to adapt. and We need to do something different. I think most thoughtful Christian leaders will say, yeah, church isn't a building. It's not a large gathering. It's not a church service. It's not a sermon. I think that... Um, proclamation is being tested right now. Do we actually believe that it costs nothing to break bread and be the church? It costs nothing to disciple people. Uh, Large gatherings have their place. Again, I I engage in large gatherings all the time, but you can be a faithful, passionate, world-changing disciple of Jesus without attending a large gathering. Do we actually believe that? I think that's going to be tested in 2020. Can we apply that? I'm excited about the test, man. I think it's going to be, um, I've been having a lot of conversations about church leaders about this. Like what does church look like in a post COVID-19 world? And it's going to be interesting, but I think um, throughout church history, we've had these kind of, and I don't, well, I'll just say it. We, we have these kind of cleansing moments or, or um, worldwide trials that, 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 that prod us to kind of reimagine what it means to be a Christian. I think we're in that moment now. And I think we, 
um, yeah. I, I, sexual minorities and so on and so forth. Again, all the info for the webinars and the sexuality and gender conference is at centerforfaith.com forward slash events. My guest today is the one and only Dr. Lynn Kohick. Lynn is a world-renowned New Testament scholar. She has taught for almost two decades at Wheaton College uh, outside of Chicago. She had a brief stint at Denver Seminary, and then now she is at Northern Seminary in Chicago. She's the author of many, many academic books. Uh, she has a PhD from University of Pennsylvania. She is super brilliant, super wise, and we dig deep into the role of women in the Christmas story, and we also talk about various other incidences with women in the Gospels. Please welcome back to the show for the second time, the one and only Dr. Lynn Cohen. I'm here with uh, Lynn Kohick. I think this is the second time, Lynn, you've been on the podcast, so thanks for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome, Preston. It's delight, delightful to talk with you, and um, yeah, good to see you. So we, um, we, I talked with uh, Craig Keener, and we, we, there we focused kind of on Luke 2 and some of the political stuff going on, kind of an imperial background kind of reading. And then Mike Bird, um, he took the other Christmas story in the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation 12, <laughs> which is a little more Stephen Kingish, you know, with the dragon trying to devour this baby being born. And, um, and, uh, yeah. So the scandal of Christmas, what's the angle you want to take with us? Yeah, I want to talk about the women in the text, um, both, uh, Matthew and Luke. Uh, and I think what impresses me the most, and can be kind of scandalous maybe to our ears today, is how much agency the women had. They were active. Uh, even even in Matthew, uh, although Mary doesn't speak, I think there's hmm. there's a lot of activity. Or, or Matthew, I, I wouldn't say he presents her as passive in the sense that we often think of passive. So, yeah, that, that I would say that there's a lot more going on. Women are doing a lot of things. And that's, that's uh, to me, maybe one of the scandals. Uh, and I don't know if it was scandalous necessarily back in the ancient world, but um, we certainly have the impression that women didn't do much back then. Right, right. And I don't think that's the case, at least in these stories. Yeah, I always took the Matthew story to, to kind of, it, it seems like Mary doesn't have a lot of agency. So I'd love to hear maybe how I'm mis- misreading that. Yeah, well, um, I'm taking a lot of my cues from a recent book by Anne Clemens okay. called Mothers at the Margins. Um, and she, um, she talks about the genealogy, the women in the genealogy mm-hmm. of Matthew. And then she, she suggests, and I, I just think there's a lot here. She suggests that when when Matthew then begins to talk about Joseph and the birth of Jesus, he's continuing his genealogy. He's just doing it in a narrative form. And he's got to answer the question, why Jesus is Joseph's father and not really Joseph's father. Mm. (laughs) And so he, he has to trace this miraculous birth. And so the uh, Matthew, if I, if I'm, Mary has to know she's pregnant. I mean, Mm. in it, you know, she, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Well, Mm. like, 
you you got to know that. Just trust me in that. And you're a father, <laughs> so you you know with your wife. Like there are things that yeah. that she just will tell you. You know what? I'm I'm now pregnant. Like I just know that. And so I I don't think Mary is surprised, but the story is well. I'm sure Mary is surprised mm-hmm. in in the sense that it's an unusual <laughs> pregnancy uh, uh, once in the in in uh, eternity pregnancy um but the focus is on uh answering the question how can joseph be jesus's father and not actually be jesus's father and so that if, as i read that story where it's a continuation of the genealogy it kind of frees me up then to hear matthew saying uh focus on the work of the holy spirit Focus on the spirit working. And when when you do that and you just twice, it talks about how Mary is uh, found pregnant through the Holy Spirit. It's in the narrative and then it's said to um, Joseph by the angel in his dream. Hmm. So um, I, I. To have Mary do a lot of talking may shift the focus of what Matthew is trying to accomplish. But yet Matthew is clear that the Holy Spirit is working in Mary's life mm-hmm. in in an incredibly powerful way. Mm. So that that's where I would say it's not really a silence. It's it's not like he's muting her. He's trying to to elevate the work of the Holy Spirit and okay. explain yeah, uh Jesus's unusual father yeah. <laughs> in a geneal- genealogical sense. Lynn, I'm curious, because this is, I, I would, can you paint a background for us just briefly? Like, how are women viewed, and I guess there's maybe two contexts we can talk about, the Greco-Roman world and then the, the Jewish world, because I think that's, if you, I mean, I guess this is more of a question, like if we just come to the text without some kind of awareness mm-hmm. of that world, we're going to re- read it through kind of modern Western lenses, and we might not see some of the kind of maybe provocative um, and, and countercultural presentations of, of women in the in, in the scriptures. So Greco-Roman and the Jewish world, how are women viewed in those two contexts? And I know I know it's a big question, but maybe you can give us the, the footnotes to it or, or cliff notes. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I think the one thing um, to realize is that women in the larger Greco-Roman world were were active. Both Jewish and Gentile women were active in the marketplace. They might have owned their store or it was a family store that they used. So in these small towns, um, women, um, you know, that they, they, everybody who could work had to work to produce food to put it on the table. So women were, were act, they, they were active. They were out in the community. This idea that they were sequestered in their homes comes from classical Greek, uh, the very wealthy families back in, let's say, Aristotle's time um, would be, and, and perhaps some of the very wealthy could afford to not have to go out in public uh, too much and, and kind of avoid the, you know, the private jet instead of flying commercial kind of thing. Um, but for the rest of us, um, the women are out there. So I think that it's important that that uh, people understand women are, are they're just out there like women are today shopping and traveling and working and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
within the Jewish context, and it's important for our story, for the Christmas story, Jewish women knew scripture because they were either going to up to the temple where they would hear uh, scripture read or they were in their synagogues and they every week they would hear scripture and they would participate in the activities such as festivals and, and other things where they they knew these stories. And you can tell that when you read Mary's Magnificat, that there's so many scriptural allusions in there. So the Jewish women knew the uh, new scripture. So that would be something else. And the pagan women, the Gentile women, there are no scripture to know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so that I would say that's an important piece um, for us. And then I would say that at the time of Jesus, Jewish women could choose to follow uh, particular teachers. Uh, we know that there were uh, Jewish women who identified themselves as Pharisees, maybe even that their husbands were Sadducees, but they followed the Pharisaic uh, tradition. So women made those kinds of choices also. Um, they, we know that women joined the Essenes, um, and, and not just that they joined because their husbands were there, but they themselves participated. In fact, in one case, you know, you have the, the purity codes um, in, in the Old Testament that, in, that regulate marital relations um, relative to a woman's menstrual cycle. And, and the woman was responsible in, in the Essene group to, uh, to make sure that they didn't uh, break those purity codes. She and her husband break those purity codes. And if he insisted, and so the laws were broken, it was incumbent upon her to let the leader of the community know uh, that this happened. And I think we 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 imagine that you know women had no no uh, self expression, mm -hmm. but in that example, these women are equal members in the community and are as responsible for the purity of the community as their husbands are. So I say all of that um, to kind of drive home a point with Mary. For me, the one of the things that kind of gets under my skin a little bit each year at this time when people talk about Mary and they talk about her as this poor unwed mother who's probably frightened and is going to be an outcast and all of that stuff. Yeah. And I, I want to remind people that she is betrothed. So as Matthew says, she could be um, Joseph was thinking he would divorce her, even though they haven't had the wedding day. Yeah. The betrothal yeah. in her community was a very formal um, demonstration of intention. And so for her to um, to break those vows by becoming pregnant was like breaking wedding vows. And that's why the mm -hmm. language of um, divorce is there. Mm -hmm. But as long as no one else knows that she's pregnant, Joseph can accept the child, which he ultimately does. Right. He accepts the child as his own. And so if Mary believes that Joseph is going to believe her or the angel tells him before she has a chance to tell him, then, I mean, she may face the shame, but she also may not at all. I mean, Joseph is supposedly a very nice, righteous man. And so uh, it it is very possible that she said yes to the angel, even though she thought, oh, I'm opening myself up to all the shame. Uh -huh. 
But I'd like to suggest that at least as plausible a reconstruction of this is that Mary, godly woman that she is, was so excited about the fact that God is on the move and that the Messiah is coming Hmm. that she figured God's going to also take care of this with Joseph. And and he does. And there's. Yeah, because she's, you know, um, betrothed. So the reason I push this scenario so much is that I feel like by emphasizing she could be, you know, she's this poor, unwed mother who is going to face all this shame. None of us will want to raise our daughters to be a Mary. Hmm. We're not focusing on the fact that the angel Gabriel came to her and said, here's here's God's plan for you. And her her question back is very different, actually, than Zacharias. If you look at his response to the angel Gabriel about the news of he and Elizabeth having a child with Mary, it's more of a technical question. Right. She said. Uh, sort of like, you know, I, I took eighth grade health and I kind of know how pregnancy <laughs> happens. And I'm, you know, <laughs> you know, so a little bit more here, you know, but she, but she's saying she's already thinking God's going to do this. So so tell me how it's going to happen. Hmm. And and hmm. I want her faithfulness. I want her belief to be accented. And I feel like when we jump immediately to the hmm. poor unwed mother shameful all that we we lose an opportunity to see mary as as a role model Mm. for us of trusting that god cares for his own Mm -hmm. um so anyway that i I think that's an important piece of the story sorry i have to ask this question It's it's in my mind it's a little it's a little off the topic but maybe you can give a quick response that there's that verse because you said the women are out and about they're in the marketplace they're going to synagogue or listening they're, they have a lot more chutzpah maybe than than, um, yeah. than some people realize and and I the little I know about the other earlier Greek period Aristotle day it wasn't the case then they kind of keep them locked up in the home and like it was not that at all so this is more of a the Greco the Roman kind of period where where and, and even first century Judaism where women had more agency what it, what's that what is the meaning of that verse in Titus 2, where Paul instructs older women to teach younger women to be, is it busy at home, to be homebodies, to stay at home? Because that, I, I know that's off the topic of the Christmas story, but I, that's always, I've always wondered, are we reading that command through a modern lens? Is there something in the word that doesn't say what we think it says there? Well, I, I, um, how I would answer that is by uh, saying that in the Greco-Roman world, so the Hellenistic time period, not classical Greek, okay. you know, with Aristotle, and Plato and all that. But in the Hellenistic period and the Roman period, there there was a uh, an importance placed on the matron of the home the woman who built up the home and some of that language is used in the pastorals. I, I'm okay. I, I don't have the Greek specifically in front of me right now of the passage that you talked about, but yeah. the but overall this there is this sense in which the woman is I'll say in charge of the running of the household. 
think maybe of like the uh, woman in Proverbs 31 where she's got businesses, she's mm. making, you know, she's making the clothes or seeing that the clothes are made. She's, you know, she just manages. It's like she's managing this fairly complex household where most things were, uh, well, lots of things were made uh, by the family that they used um, in their um, they didn't purchase everything kind of like how we in an mm-hmm. industrialized society go out and purchase things. Many things were done in the home, but not everything. They would go out and buy baked bread instead of baking it themselves. But um, more things happened in the home. And if you think of, let's say, like Lydia in Acts 16, uh-huh. she she likely had at least maybe retainers or... or um, relatives that lived with her she had, she had a household and maybe she even was a slave owner or freed slaves that that were uh with in her home and she had a business purple dye so that's kind of what i'm i mean I, i'm thinking that is in is in the backdrop there of these um pastoral epistles yeah in, in these cities you would have women that I mean, not all women had means, right? Not not all families had means, but some did. And in those cases, you were managing, you were managing things. So that mm-hmm. I think is probably what what the yeah. focus is. Not not in the sense of private and public. There's a lot of, and this okay. is taking us further from no, the Christmas story. But let yeah. me just say, it's, I think it's exciting, new in, new thinking about this public-private split that was so common in. In understanding the New Testament period, you know, even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, but newer research, I think, on that language is showing that the way we think of public and private just doesn't map onto their world. Hmm. So that, I think, also allows us to to reimagine how women could be both modest and speak in public, you know, And, and we used to say, well, that's not... That's not possible, but it but it is just because of the way they divide up their their space and how they think about public and private. The, the Greek word I just looked it up is uh, oikurgos, so the blend of oikos and ergon. It's it's a hotbox. It's only used here in Titus. Um, so a worker, something with work and home. So it's kind of a little bit, little ambiguous exactly what Paul's saying there. It's almost you, you do. You do have to kind of draw on the kind of cultural context, right, to even understand what it's right. just one word, you know. Um, but I, I know I, mean, I was raised in a very conservative, like, context. I remember when my wife, before we had kids, <laughs> when my wife went and got a job, some people were like, well, you're letting your wife work? I said, first of all, there's so many problems with the way that question's worded. But I'm like, we live in an 800-square-foot apartment with no kids. What do you, what do you want her to do all day, like? What is, well, she's, she needs to be a worker. Paul says she needs to be a worker at home. So this this verse, I've, I've, I've always been kind of like, I just don't know if that's what's. I, I think we might no, have a modern not. understanding of what Paul's trying to say there, but that's helpful. Oh, absolutely, um, and and it and it presupposes a socioeconomic status mm. um, that mm. it just cannot be carried. There's always been women working. I, I just watched. Um, Scrooge, you know, the Christmas yeah. Carol, oh, yeah. um, which I love that story. You know, well, you've always had 
char women. You know, you've always had women that come in and and work. I mean, not it's you also have wealthier women that didn't do that kind of work. But there we have to be careful when we translate scripture and are imagining a house um, (laughs) that we don't just impose our 21st century American socioeconomic cover onto onto that. Let's go back to the Christmas story then. So, um, Mary, um, do we have the age? I mean, we always say she's a young teenager, um, and Joseph might have been a bit older. Do you have any thoughts on the age of the two? How, how much do we know or don't know? Yeah, I think she's probably a mid-teenager. I think that probably makes sense. I think the Romans knew that uh, pregnancy in a young, younger woman, even if she's able to get pregnant probably isn't going to be healthy for her that it is better for a woman to be a little bit older uh but i mean still in her teens okay is what i is what i would think so i don't know 15 16 something like that okay uh 17 okay. maybe with joseph so much depends on whether you think he and mary had a family together after jesus um or whether the the brothers and sisters that are referred to as Jesus as part of Jesus's family are actually what we would call stepbrothers and sisters from uh, a marriage that Joseph had previously. Um, there, that other scenario to me that that Jesus had stepbrothers and sisters is certainly very plausible at this time. There were so many um, marriages that ended in the death of a spouse mm-hmm. for just so so many reasons that today we don't even don't even factor for us but certainly could be the case including dying in childbirth and shortly after that from complications with childbirth so yeah. so it may be that you know he had a couple of children with his, with another wife and then she passed away and so mary is his second wife and that that just was not ever considered a a problem, although they did have a virtue back in this time where you married once and then didn't remarry after the death of your, especially a wife with her husband to kind of honor his memory. And so that, that idea of just being married once, um, certainly continues in the early church. And that may be, frankly, uh, when, when Paul says the, um, leader, the deacon, the, um, elder uh, or overseer should be the husband of one wife. Oh, yeah. um, some argue that maybe what, what that means is that one, if, if your spouse, if your wife passes on, just stay single. That, that would certainly from a cultural standpoint, that could be a legitimate interpretation of, of that. I think also, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't we say, so if he did have other kids before Mary, we don't see anything about him packing up his family, going to Bethlehem or going down to Egypt or anything. I mean, it's an argument from silence, right? I mean, it doesn't say one way or another, but um, you do. It seems like you get the impression that there's no other kids around, around the birth That's narratives. Right. I don't know. but Yep. So whether those children just remained up in Nazareth with mm-hmm. um, relatives while he and his new wife traveled to Bethlehem. Mm. Maybe that's a possibility. The fact that he exits the story fairly quickly. Yeah. We don't we don't hear about him um, as Jesus enters, you know, into his teens. Um, 
that some argue, you know, he just passed away of old age. I'll put that kind of in scare quotes. Uh, people did live. If, if you live, I mean, you could live to even in your 70s, but it was um, rare. Right, <laughs> so. right. You have that hemorrhaging woman who lived, depends on the translation, she lived, what is it, 84 years as a widow? Or there's some rendering that she could almost be 105, I think, or something, which seems... Um, is oh, it is that in... No, it's Anna. Anna. The Anna, Anna in the uh, yeah, Anna in the um, in the temple who was married for right. a little bit and then lived as a widow. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, 84, 103, either of those are possible. But I mean, 103 is really stretching it. But you could live that. You could live that long. Um, and the fact that she stayed mainly in one spot and yeah, didn't crazy. face the challenges. Childbirth. Um, it's very possible that that she lived in eight decades. Yeah. So uh, going back to the Christmas story, so you have Matthew one and two, and then Luke one and two. Are women portrayed the same, similarly or differently in these two accounts? Would you? Um, it seems like, at least in Luke one, I mean, obviously Mary, you know, is very front and center and speaks a lot, and the other men Magnificat. Um, Luke's. You know, yeah. Yeah, and go ahead. I've also been very interested in Elizabeth. I've wondered about um, just what her her level of faith, to my mind, is remarkable. Um, She. She becomes pregnant, and and I don't know why, but she goes into seclusion for a little while. Um, but it's and I and I I don't know why she does that. But she she's so um, when I mean she's the first person who testifies to Jesus Christ, right? It, mm-hmm. Her baby John leaps in her womb, but she is also somehow ready for 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 receiving mary um you know when mary after she uh encounters gabriel she then goes to visit elizabeth and i mean we all know kind of we kind of know the story elizabeth greets mary or hears her greeting and john leaps in her womb but elizabeth blesses her um Blessed is the child you'll bear. Um, you are the mother of my Lord. It, it just, she's another woman that I don't think we focus enough on who has for years and years and years and years prayed that she would have a child. And then the Lord provides that mm-hmm. child for her. Um, and and yet what, where her main focus is, is not to say to Mary, look at me, look at what God did for me, but to say, you're the mother of my Lord. I mean, it just, mm. I feel like both Mary and Elizabeth have grasped what God is doing in, in at least some way that, that I don't think people emphasize enough. Mm. Uh, and, and kind of, if we realize that these women were theologically astute mm-hmm. 
And we recognize that women in the New Testament could be theologically astute. Mm -hmm. I think it would uh, help us to better understand and better appreciate the testimony of female disciples. We can all be Elizabeth, right? Mm -hmm. We can all, men and women, can can pray that they would be like Elizabeth, who recognizes what the Spirit of God is doing and being self-aware enough to uh, to then verbalize that. So, I've never noticed that. I mean, yeah, she's got just, so much to celebrate, and she can be so excited about her own kid, but she's just so solely fixed on the birth of Jesus um, in the midst yeah. of her own kind of like miracle uh, baby. Um, wow. Yeah, I've always been so impressed with the level of scripture that just saturates Mary's Magnificat. Um, so we talk. So for those who don't know, this is the the Magnificat is the name given to Mary's song. She sings, if you want to call it a song. Does she? What is it? I mean, poem, song, whatever. Her explanation or exclamation in response to greeting Elizabeth. So this is Luke chapter one forty six to. 55 um i mean there's it's saturated with scripture is this i mean i know and i know it's 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 hard like how much is luke involved in the reworking and how much is the original like if we were there 2000 years ago but um do you have any thoughts on that in particular like the the relationship between what mary said 2000 years ago and luke's reworking is that a i mean that's kind of a complicated conversation or should we should we like think like no mary just had so much scripture in her heart like this it just came out when she was excited with, about the news of her baby well i i think it is plausible that it's the latter that's try, in a way the case that i'm trying to make hmm. that um the way that elizabeth sets this up blessed is she who has believed that the lord would fulfill his promises to her there's this blessing hmm. and then mary says my hmm. soul glorifies the lord these are two women who have been touched in an incredibly special way by the Holy Spirit. And and I would argue that Elizabeth's pregnancy is almost as miraculous. It's not the same because it does happen through her husband, but her husband's also amazed. <laughs> and so the this this is an amazing miracle that has happened and then obviously it's a unique miracle that has happened with Mary both these women I mean just if we just stop and think about for several months now each of these women have been able to think about the fact that the Holy Spirit touched their lives in ways that are profoundly physical I don't know if either of them have morning sickness for example scripture doesn't tell us but I don't know if each time they you know throw up they think praise God I have a life in me you know what I'm saying their their whole body is changing physically they every day know that they're pregnant and it's a re- physical reminder of this spiritual reality that has touched them so if Mary which we're we're, we're um, led to believe is a religious religiously attuned person you know would have picked up scripture being read each and every synagogue since the time each and every sabbath at synagogue from the you know time she could you know remember i mean it just it's always been that and going up to the uh jerusalem and the festivals and hearing scripture read and songs being sung 
in a in a culture where there's this is a literate culture, but not everyone is literate. So there's a lot of orality to this, a lot of singing, putting scripture to um, a cadence. Hmm. I I can totally believe that she could produce something like this wow. uh, because that that's how they're going to remember scripture. That's how they're going to um, meditate on it. So I don't think Luke has to do a whole lot. I think he, it's a believe to me it's a believable presentation of of a of a disciple. So and a teenager. I'm yeah. say she is 15, and she gets again. It's it's not like she sat down and spent a couple hours crafting a poem and looking up verses. She doesn't own a. There's no Bibles back then, right? I mean, there's. There's there's the scroll at the synagogue that she hears. She's probably not literate, right? I mean, she probably most likely wouldn't have been literate. So this is all audible, just absorbing right. of going to and absorbing when you know she has to be faithful of even going to synagogue. At fifteen, she's absorbing this, and it's all just strung together. I mean, she's quoting. I have it in my references here. I mean, a lot from like First Samuel, right? There's a there's a correlation here between Hannah. In First Samuel two yes. and Mary, right? Can, yes. can you talk a little bit about that? That seems to be very intentional. That these two characters seem to be playing off of each other. At least Mary is. Is she? Is, is Mary like an extension of Hannah? Does or yeah? What's what's the, how, how should we understand these two stories? Well, I mean, it it could be she could be thinking about uh, Samuel and the story of Samuel that eventually leads to King David um, and Hannah's. Um, Part of Hannah's story is that she bears this son for God and is dedicated to God. So there may be some connecting points that way. Um, the, you know, it may it may reveal to us that Hannah's song, like Miriam's song, were very much a part. I don't know this speculation on my part, but did the early Jewish communities, at least in some places. Uh, use these songs by Hannah and by Miriam uh, to uh, to worship, and if so, then you know it's it's Mary would have heard would have heard these, hmm. and and also what she's saying is you know God performing mighty deeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean you would hear that in Psalm after Psalm after Psalm. So and. Raising up the poor, bringing down the wealthy. Again, those are basic themes that would have would have been part of her, her part of her world. So she wouldn't have needed to read scripture. Yeah. And it is maybe yeah. it is remarkable that at fifteen she knew this, and maybe she's just a wonderfully remarkable woman yeah. <laughs> who is spiritually uh, spiritually sensitive. I know I sound like you know a broken record in saying that, but so. So often, I think people are surprised at women, both in the Bible and later, who who want to study theology, who are, are, you know what I mean, that are uh, intellectually stimulated by the, the conversations in theology and biblical studies. It just kind of, I think of that with the Samaritan woman and how she gets into a conversation with Jesus about where is Where's the true holy site, which is a live theological question at that time and a practical question at that time. And some interpreters say, well, she's just trying to divert Jesus's attention. And 
And the fact that he answers her question and even more answers it with this idea that God will be worshipped in spirit and in truth, which is an amazing concept. Mm. I mean, it, it, that's not to us so much now, but back in the ancient world where people were still doing law, they were doing animal sacrifices in sacred spaces. That's, an, that's just a remarkably advanced theological concept. And he says it to her, assuming, I think, that she would pick up at least some aspect of it. And, and people, by saying, oh, well, you know, she's trying to divert Jesus' attention, suggests to me they just can't imagine that a woman would have real deep theological questions and would want to talk with a prophet about them. So, yeah, so I think Mary's song, and she's, she's a precocious one. She's the precocious one in the, uh, <laughs> in the uh, grade school, Sunday schools, you know. She's the, she's the one that asks the questions. Well, you have, then you also have like Mary and Martha, Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, right, which is a posture of a student of a rabbi, right? Like she's a theology student is kind of the yep. the picture there. I'm, since you, you mentioned the woman at the well, what, I, I, I often hear people refer to her as kind of like a an immoral woman. You know, she's just going from man to man to man to man, and now she's shacking up with some guy that she's not married to. But that, again, did that happen back then? I mean, I... It seems no. like I don't know. Is there more? Is she a victim of being taken advantage of by several men, or is she sexually immoral? Like, how should we understand her character in that story? Yeah, I don't think she's sexually immoral. Um, I think that first of all, women could not um, could not divorce their husband. They, a woman, had to have a guardian represent them in court. So while she might say, I'd like to get a divorce, she would need to have uh, a relative or somebody else, but a guardian that would go with her and sign the document for mm-hmm. divorce. That's why in the Gospels, Jesus might say a man should not divorce his wife and a woman should not separate from her husband because she can't on her own uh complete a divorce that that legal um, process she can't do on her own Um, so I don't think she divorced five times I can't imagine and I don't think she was barren and so these men unless there were a lot of very confident men in this Samaritan town who thought wait let me let me uh, me take a chance yeah yeah I don't think that that the issue was uh, was that um, I I think as we see even like in the story of Ruth in ancient times uh, tragedy could strike a family with a lot of deaths hmm. and so I could imagine this woman having maybe even three husbands die um, and to have one there could be divorce in, in this maybe um it's hard. We don't have a lot of information about how the Samaritans handled their marriage practices mm-hmm. compared to the Gentiles broadly, and then the and the Jews. Um, so maybe there was a divorce. Maybe she was divorced once, or but I can't imagine for immorality because it'd be very odd for another man then to divorce a woman who had been accused of adultery. I I don't think you'd find that much at all. So assuming that she was always in this village. 
um, I think she she experienced a lot of tragedy mm-hmm. in her life. We mm-hmm. have lots of exa- not lots, but we have examples of people being married three times because um, you know two two husbands die early on. I'm thinking it's um, one of Herod the Great's granddaughters. She was married, you know, mid-teens, and he died. She remarried. He died. And so by the time she's in her early to mid-20s, she's married a third time. So that, it's very possible for something like that to happen with a Samaritan woman. The reason that... Um, so anyway, I could imagine even five husbands dying is kind of an amazing thing, but it's, yeah, it's an amazing thing, but it could happen in our physical universe. It's the, you're living with a man now that's not your husband that is the point of contention. And I would I would argue she could be a second wife. The person she's with now may also have, also be married, so it would be uh, polygyny, which is not hmm. recognized by the Romans, but... Um, we do seem to have uh, an example of a Jewish polygynous, um relationship in the second century, early second century. So uh, that could be, and of course, Herod the Great had many wives, but just mm-hmm. the average person, we have an example of that. And then, um, and it may be that she's a concubine, which is a technical kind of situation in the Greco-Roman world where the husband couldn't, couldn't um, have a regular sort of marriage for a variety of social reasons. And so in that set up a concubine relationship where the woman could be, if she had sex with another man, be accused of um, adultery. But as a concubine, she didn't inherit the same way. Her children wouldn't inherit the same way. So it's possible that she, that the Samaritan woman is in this situation. So kind of protected mm-hmm. under a man's roof. But not if they had any children, those children wouldn't inherit, you know, because she's in the secondary category of concubine. Um, so I can kind of, I mean, those are two readily available alternatives that are not God's best. Mm-hmm. Clearly, Jesus teaches about what's God's best in, in marriage, but are not are not immoral in the eyes of the community. And I, I have to say that it's in the eyes of the community that for me, I just can't believe that she is an immoral woman. When when Jesus tells her her history, which is a remarkable history, right? Mm-hmm. Five husbands. You just don't guess that, right? It's clear he's a prophet. And that's what she says. You're a prophet. So then they talk and he gives her this rich theology. When she goes back to her town, they all believe and they and they don't see a changed woman. It's not like the Gerasene demoniac who's now in his right mind and they all see, wow, something really changed. They believe her. They believe her because of her testimony. And her testimony is he told me everything I, I ever did. And for women in the ancient world, you can see it on tombstones, who they were married to and what children they had very much identifies them compared to for men, sometimes their occupation will also be listed. So Jesus identified her, knew her in that way that is a typical way of women being identified then. But it's remark she has such a remarkable history, Jesus couldn't just guess that. Mm-hmm. And that's why she says he's a prophet. Mm-hmm. So they believe because of her testimony, and that says to me they knew her as a moral person, a religious seeker, someone who was very focused on um 
understanding the Bible, because the Samaritans used the first five books of Moses. They just under, understood them differently than the Jews. But but they at least knew the basic story, right? They would say, oh, we're we're connected with the ancient Israelites. We're right, you know. And and so she was interested in that. And they, the townspeople believed her. And then they go out and they want to talk with Jesus more. And they say, you know, now now that we've heard him, we really believe. But, you know, even more. And they call Jesus the savior of the world. And that's a title that we rarely see. But it's it's given to him in part based on her testimony. And I think that their testimony, savior of the world, I think encapsulates what he was saying to her that in the future, those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. And and so she was able to communicate that cosmic aspect of Jesus's message to her. And they believe. Hmm. I just don't think. I, I just can't imagine any town then or now that would have that kind of belief response to someone that they believed was immoral. Yeah, that, that's uh, especially in that day and age. If she was a sexually promiscuous person, they wouldn't they wouldn't have trusted her testimony. Um, so that that makes total sense with the five husbands that she just given the cultural dynamics, she most likely was not going around divorcing like that's just not possible. Um, so she is a victim. Then the guy she's living with, even if she is a concubine or a second wife, in that culture, right? I mean, she kind of needs to get married to be able to survive i'm sure people probably thought she was cursed i mean if all these husbands keep dying you know i'm I'm thinking like genesis 38 you know remixed um uh so there's there's so much victimhood that saturates her story do do, the one no yeah the one option you mentioned is like sorry could she just be shacking up with a guy that the the guy she's now living with just like neither of them are married they're just or was that not really a thing that is certainly no, I mean, it, it, it certainly is possible that she is uh, doing that. Um, the one other uh, point when you mentioned back in um, Genesis 38, it marriage. So it may be that the man that she's with now is in some way a relative of her pre- previous husband, but he is not honoring her. Um, kind of like, you know, before Boaz, there was someone that was that kinsman redeemer and said, well, nope. I, I'm happy to take uh-huh. Ruth's family land, but I really don't want her, yeah. you know, and then Boaz accepts her and his family responsibilities in that. So it, but I have no idea if the Samaritans followed that practice at all, but that could also be that she's caught in that kind of web of um, customs that, um, you know, that is, isn't honoring uh, the relationship in the full in the full sense as Jesus as Jesus means it. If they are the, the other thing that people need to realize today is that the state did not give a marriage certificate. In the ancient world, you just said you're married and you had a wedding, and the documentation around that, if any, was a dowry agreement. That was the thing you could take to court, and so. And, you know, to write a, a dowry meant you had money. <laughs> so the yeah. woman brought money into the marriage and the husband could use the dowry amount. But the wife may have other money that's hers. 
So not all of her money gets turned over to the husband. The husband only has the dowry money. And if he divorces her without cause, that is, like if she committed adultery, all bets are off. But if he just decides, I don't want you anymore, I want somebody else, he has to give her back all of the dowry. So that's that's all written up in these dowry documents. So it may be that a couple stays together, doesn't have money for a wedding, but then when their child is born, they create a document. And in that document, it indicates that they had been together for a while, but I don't know that we would call it cohabitation in the way that we think of it today. Okay. It may be just that they are documenting what the, the society already knew and honored and affirmed, but now they're documenting it because they've had a child and, and so there might be some money and inheritance involved. Yeah, so to me, I, I go back to Jesus teaches what marriage is, that, you know, the two become one flesh, a man uh, and a woman become one flesh, and that's ideal. And he teaches his disciples um, that that should be um, uh, a lifelong partnership. And they're a bit surprised <laughs> and reluctant uh, to commit themselves uh, to a woman who will eventually grow old. Um, but the... Um, uh, but that's Jesus's ideal. And, and so I, I'm always thinking of that when he says the one you're with now is not your husband, remembering how he defines husband, which is God's best and isn't always um, expressed in culture in, in those same high standards. <laughs> wow. Gosh. I, you must cringe when you go to church sometimes. <laughs> I don't know what church you go to. When they, when they start this stuff, I really do. And when they start the genealogy of Matthew, I'm like, ah, because again, the whole, whole sexual innuendo stuff comes up, uh, and you know, it just the the theme of you know, look how great God is. He even saves women who are sexually immoral. And while that is true. The problem that I have with that is that women never escape, even if they're women on the page, they never escape the shame of the uh, sexual uh, sin. And so we lose them as possible role models. And huh. I, I also think that those women uh, are not being judged for sexual sins. Tamar is trying to have a child to honor her husband or and it's judah that is wrong right it's and judah right. says you are more righteous than me in fact this is a turning point in judah's life he he had been fleeing his family and he's the guy who sold his brother mm -hmm. this is a turning point for him and he starts to go back onto the onto the right path and we see how he treats um joseph and and benjamin so the uh with Rahab, yes, as a Gentile, she owned an inn. Lots of un, ungodly things happened there. Um, but Rahab is the one that prophesies that God will um, will conquer the land, not the spies. And I find it interesting. People focus a lot on her immorality. And then they just skim right over the the issue that the spies went to her house. Oh, of course not to engage in any kind of immorality. And I think, well, how, how are you so sure about that? <laughs> you know, we give them. And like, yeah. Well, also in that, in yeah. that culture, <laughs> in a Canaanite culture, we have to ask the deeper, you know, 
this whole idea that like women become prostitutes because they're sexually promiscuous or something like this is this is a down and out like what's the backstory to Rahab that would send her down that path? I mean, again, not to excuse just blit, just sexual. You shouldn't be a prostitute. Okay. She's having sex with guys that aren't, she's not married to, but she has to have a lot of victimhood built into that story to get her to that place. Right. I mean, that's, that's a valid assumption. Oh, oh yeah. So many of the slaves in the first century, um, are, I mean, so many of the slaves were um, put out as prostitutes. Um, so, and any slave at at this in the first century was uh, available to their owner and whoever their owner chose to make them available to. So, and you know, in every church congregation, you're going to have slaves, right? So, I mean, the, the we anyway that would take us far afield to kind of ponder that sort of stuff, but. The, um, with, with Rahab, she is the one that testifies to what God will do. And it's not until the end of the story that the slave, that the, uh, spies, when they return, uh, to, uh, Joshua, proclaim basically what Rahab had said Mm -hmm. over, uh, over them. And then, you know, with Ruth, that's a beautiful story. And, and Ruth, uh, uses agency, both Ruth and Naomi. And, present the question to Boaz, will you uh, serve as our kinsman redeemer? And and he praises Ruth. So this idea that, you know, she's trying to be um, seductive on a threshing floor, that's not what he sees. That's not, that's not what the text says. He doesn't read her actions that way. He sees it as she's giving me information and she's doing it in a way and in a space where if I say no, Neither of us are shamed, right. <laughs> you know, as opposed to out in the middle right. of the of the marketplace the next day. You know, Boaz, will you marry me? Ah, it's a bit awkward. So, yeah. Um, and yeah. then um, with Bathsheba, you know, she's she's doing uh, a menstrual purity uh, rite of of um, cleansing. She's not in a jacuzzi. Um, Water was scarce, as you know, uh, at, at that time. So we don't want to imagine her just splashing around somewhere. We don't know whether she has clothes on or not as she's performing this rite. What we do know at the beginning of that story is that David's not supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. And we know at the end of the story when Nathan condemns him, he condemns just David for taking another man's ewe lamb. The man had everything, the rich man had everything, but he took what didn't belong to him. And that's the sin. So if we follow the biblical text, there, Bathsheba is sinned against, but she is not uh, the one that is trying to entice another man or is actively looking to commit adultery. She is taken by the king. And, um, and, and he, um, yeah, he, do you he think commits, there's, uh, so you think crime. she doesn't have as much agency in that story? I mean, here you have the king who is demanding her, basically. It's not like he's, cons- he's not trying to woo her in in a consensual kind of relationship, right? He's like, I, I'm the king, I'm going to sleep with you. Is that how we should understand it? More like a power rape from somebody of a higher status? Because she doesn't have I a lot of I don't think she speaks in the story, does she? She's just very much like 
an object of like even the story it makes her out to be something somebody that was taken by somebody of power yes that's yeah. right and the only thing yeah. that she indicates to david is i'm pregnant um mm-hmm. and and so the the menstrual pure the note about menstrual purity rights makes it clear to the reader that this baby will be uh david's um but i think it also helps us understand what this bathing is um and the you know, we don't know what what kind of bath this looked like. We do know that water was limited. We don't know is she trying to be under some kind of covering, but the angle is such that he can see. I mean, it's just I know people can get tripped up by he saw her bathing, but we just um, the the story itself doesn't lay blame there. It lays blame mm-hmm. on David. And so I, I, that's that's what we have to take later when she's his wife and when she is trying to secure the throne for Solomon. We see her as making very um, deliberate choices to put her son forward. But I, I don't think we want to read back into the event of when she first was brought to David that somehow she manipulated that scene as well. She's not manipulating later. She's just trying to put her son on the throne, which is a pretty normal thing that people did. A lot of the stuff that I'm sharing with you now, I want to just let the uh, your listeners know, a lot of this is in Anne Clement's book, Mothers on the Margins. It's just such an excellent book. She just really digs into each of these women and says, let's look at them in relation to key themes that we find throughout Matthew's gospel. And I love that because that brings Mary in. You know, some people say these four women in the genealogy are are Gentiles. That's what we want to hold together. And that, of course, makes Mary separate. Mm-hmm. But Bathsheba could be Jewish and just married to a Hittite. Right. It's not it's not clear uh, with that. The, the first three are definitely uh, Canaanites. They're mm-hmm. pagans. But that may not be... Well, it may be part of the theme that Matthew is drawing out because at the end he does ask that the disciples take the word to the ends of the earth. So that is a theme. But there's also a theme of righteousness throughout Matthew. And that's what Judah calls Tamar. You're more righteous than me. So the the characteristics like loyalty and faithfulness that you see with Ruth, you know, that's Jesus's call for discipleship. So there's there's a lot that can be seen in these women as as modeling important discipleship characteristics and we miss all that if we're just going to focus on oh they had a sexual sin, mm-hmm. which in a lot of cases I don't think is an accurate accurate reading. <laughs> yeah. But even you know, but even beyond that, let's not miss their discipleship uh modeling. Lynn, we're going to have to wrap things up. Can you give us this a go, go back to the Christmas story, just a real quick, like, okay, in light of all this, kind of, especially digging into a lot of the cultural backdrop, the historical backdrop, how, how should we kind of read the Christmas story, especially as it pertains to, you know, the agency of women that surround it? Yeah, wow. Um, I would like for people to read the Christmas story and the female characters as though these women are teaching us how to be faithful followers of God. Mm, that's good. That's good. They're not, they're not just on the margins of the story. 